Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and uh, virtual production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about bidding strategy. This is part of a project management uh, series that we're doing. So what are the various strategies to scope and price projects and how to enable a project to manage and protect from scope creep? We all we're all scared of that. <laughs> so anyway, so we'll be talking a little bit about that uh, in the second hour. So if you've got questions about bidding uh, in scope in scope creep and how to avoid it, uh, feels like that should be commercial somewhere. Like how to avoid now now available for scope creep. Uh, so um, so anyway, so throw those questions in. And uh, if you've got questions for the first hour, of course you can use this little QR code here. Um, and uh, you have uh, it's askofficehours.com, and you can uh, you can go ahead and ask those, and you can ask those twenty. Four seven, so that those go into a little box that isn't limited uh, by the fact that we're resetting our show every day. So if you have a question at any given time, you can you can actually um, do that. So you can go, go to askofficehours.com, throw your question in, and then we'll feed them into the system the next day. So uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, also, rem- a reminder that there is a radio app um, that's out there. And uh, if you get it in Discord, it's, in, it's under the Alex announcements. Uh, you can actually go straight to asking questions there as well. So, um, so let's check, you know, make sure to check that out. Um, and um, I'm not sure who's reading because it's not in the, it's not in the, in the thing. So I'm going to sit here and just, I'm going to read the first question and then someone will tell me in text. Uh, oh, oh, no, it's, it's me. It's oh, it's me. not. It's so me. it's really important for the folks in the back end. Uh, you got to put somebody in the reader. <laughs> like I can't. I don't, I don't know who's reading. If you don't put it in, the, it's got to be in the slate. I don't care who, whether someone filled it out or not. If it's not in the slate, I'm not gonna. You know, like, okay, that has to be there every single time. All right, let's go to the questions, Jeffrey. All right, we're gonna start over the pond. Uh, Graham Cardwell at uh, Belfast, Northern Ireland. He's going. I made a video for church, sent it by WeTransfer, and when it played out, it developed a click that's not in the original. Any suggestions on how to fix it? Go, Jesse. I don't think your problem is happening at export or WeTransfer. If it's happening at export, you can check the file on your own computer. And if you're hearing that click, then you know it's happening at export. WeTransfer shouldn't be adding any clicks into your audio. The first thing I would check is the connection between the playout device and the broadcast device and make sure that those two are running at the same frequency for audio. So it could be that um, your playout device is feeding 44.1 into a device that's expecting 48 or something like that. And uh, linking those up, matching those might help fix the click. Yeah, um, clicks are oftentimes connected to, um, you know, there's clocking issues somewhere. So when you hear clicks, oftentimes you want to look at if you've got various clocks that are in there. Uh, Next question. Next question comes from John Preto from Las Vegas, uh, and he basically says, so let's discuss the Sphere experience. Mr. Fenwick, roll video. I don't have a video, John. You, get, the, <laughs> you can't just, like, call this. I told you before the show. I know, but I, but then I asked you where it was. Uh, never mind. I don't have a video. So, the, yeah, there's tons of videos. There's a million videos of YouTube playing, most of them people with their iPhones. Uh, uh, yeah, go, go, ahead, go ahead, John. Did so, so Alex, Alex said it months ago. The, the the venue is overshadowing the band completely. It's really interesting because there's this shot, and the band looks about They're an tiny. inch tall. Well, because they the, are an inch tall, and like and I mean, the, they're, they're not. Have, you, tall, have I mean, you seen the videos, Alex? I I, I saw the videos. They're yeah. exactly what the, all the bands are worried about. You yeah. know, like it's it's not. You don't really need the band to be there. 
you know, I think that's the, that's the challenge. Now, as an experience of, um, as experiencing, you know, something there, I think it's an incredible venue. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure if they made the sale yet that the band should go there. I mean, it, you know, I think that the problem is, I guess what we haven't seen a lot of is any kind of, you know, virtual IMAG that goes up, that might go up there, that, that shows the band there, which would probably make it. But we have to remember that when you go to a, a Taylor Swift concert or a whatever, you are, the band is <laughs> probably smaller. Uh, you know, the artist is probably smaller than what you see there. I mean, we see a lot of videos of these artists from someone that's, you know, four rows back or 40 rows back, but we don't see what it looks like when they are, you know, back in the, you know, section CJ 188 CCC, you know, they're, they're a lot smaller back there. I've had that seat. It's awful. <laughs> that was the last, the last seat, I, the last stadium um, show I saw was I think in 1997 and it was U2 and I was in one of those seats. It was free, you know, it was like someone had some extra seats and we went and watched U2 and I was like, I don't even know why I'm here. And that's the last, that's the last uh, concert that I've seen in a stadium. And go ahead, Chris. You can tell the people that aren't U2 fans because they say U2. Um, so it, it, here's my take on it. I think that what we have been experiencing for the last 30 or 40 years is a matter of scale and its proportions. So like, yes, the, 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 the talent are small. And, and if you're in a, a stadium, right, uh, you're, you're, Definitely looking at iMag. I think I find it interesting when you sometimes when you look at people's like cell phone videos from a concert, what they tend to shoot mostly is the iMag screen. You know, like, oh look, there's you know, Bono, blah. But they're shooting the screen. And so but it also has to do with like with distance. So the thing about the sphere, the sphere, all the video that I've seen, and again, I haven't been in the in the ball. But it seems super claustrophobic. Like, like the screen is like really pushing back on me. And and it and I'd love to know what the s delivery specs are for making stuff for that screen. Um, I've made a lot of videos for very large screens, not that big, obviously. Uh, and um, it would be. I don't think they've figured out how to use the screen. Like, how do you use this screen? I thought it was interesting. They they did a few looks. One of the things was like this cross look where they split they, they like animated like crack in the sphere and then a horizontal crack and then they lined it with like 16 by 9 ish or even 3 by 4 video representations of what's going on they did a few vistas the vistas were pretty spectacular but now i'm just watching a vista of the desert while i listen to a bunch of u2 music and the band are these little tiny you know dots at the bottom of the screen so how do, and then take this into consideration. Bono's what, 62, 63 years old? I don't want my 60 year old face that big in front of people where they're sitting that close. I'm going to look like hell, right? That's not pretty. Nobody wants to look at that. Like nobody wants to look at that. And so you don't want to fill the screen with faces and stuff. So I don't think. I don't think they've figured out how to use the screen effectively for a rock and roll show. I mean, uh, what I think was in some of the trade magazines was they were having a hard time getting bands to want to play there because they thought they'd be swallowed up by the screen. And I think they got U2 to do it um, because they, uh, 
I paid him a lot of money. <laughs> you know, and, you, and you too, oftentimes um, will, you know, they are, they always want to be on the front edge of a lot of things. So they, you know, there's a lot of, if you're looking for a, a relatively large band that will take an, ex, make an experiment. I did a stream with them uh, a couple of years ago and, um, and they, you know, it was a very experimental thing. It was only up there for, it was a new music video and it was only, it was exclusive and it was only there for a minute. <laughs> like, like it was there for the day or whatever that you could watch it. And that's the kind of thing that, that they like to do is do something crazy that is, that, that's going to stretch the environment out. It was, it was, it was a, a remarkably complicated show to do for, for, uh, for, for a moment, you know, and, um, but, but you too tends to go down that path um you know so i think they, they picked the right band to experiment with but i think that they they haven't proven that they've gotten past the what everyone's afraid of but the the the, the function is they have a band that's willing to experiment and they're paying them enough to be patient and they um now have a band that they can play with you know they can play with the idea you know and, and see what actually is going to there's nothing better than doing something um you know to figure it out yeah go ahead chris one last little thing the third sort of uh style look that they're doing is full 3d rendered madness you know and and, and that i think is interesting but it's also not really rock and roll it's mm -hmm. just it's it's the b-roll for the music video and so i i go, i still go back to i don't think they've figured out how to use that screen but the, I, I guess what I will say, in, in all fairness, the only way they're going to figure it out is by doing it. You know, like you've got to do a lot of it. Yes, you've got to do See a lot of it. And with can't, you can you can sit you can sit there and play with the screen and watch it and do things, but you can't, you don't know until 17,000 people are in seats and you're doing things to see what they react to, what they don't react to, how they interact. You know, there's just, and I, again, I think that this is, this is the beginning. I think four or five years from now, I think they could do really well. I think... I think it's going to be a great venue to go see stuff in. I don't know if it's 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 great for the band. I do think that uh, I think in four or five years they're going to have this pretty well figured out. I think there'll probably be three or four of these, and I just don't know if they if the ROI is going to be there anytime soon. But it's it's it looks pretty amazing. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I was going to say what you what the first people saw and what the people at the end of that uh, residency see, I suspect, will be completely different because they will iterate through it. We went to see Depeche Mode, I know, Child of the 80s, uh, last week. So about 12,000 people. So there's a huge jump from 12,000 to stadium or even bigger. And the scale is really dramatic. And, you know, the sort of arena size, the, the artists can still be fairly in the middle of the action, you know, um, the one place I've seen it done really interesting is the ABBA Voyage thing in London, which is, they're not 3D avatars, but you, you get the idea of it. And that, to me, for the first time, sort of broke the point. They had a live band, they had them on video aged appropriately to when they were making hits. And when they were on the big screen, that, that looked great. And I wonder whether there's some mix there that they should look at. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the, I mean, what I've heard from the ABBA thing, I haven't been to it yet, is that, you know, the lighting effects and everything else really, you know, tie it in. And outside of a handful of places that feel like a music video, you just get kind of like even the, the video parts that don't, that aren't someone on stage actually takes you out of it in a way that, you know, that you, it suddenly becomes a video screen, which is something I've been tracking very, I work on a lot of concerts, <laughs> so very tracking, like what, breaks that feeling that you're there and and it sounds like the the only thing the abba one that people talked about was the fact that there was some places that didn't feel like it felt like a music music video a music video not them on stage and they would have preferred it to just be them on stage it, like it 
it, the um, the conceit of what they were trying to do was maintained until they broke it, you know, and that was an interesting uh, puzzle there. Go ahead, CJ. I'm a I'm a big big concert fan. Uh, I think I've been to 150 or 200 shows. I'm actually going to see the show at the Sphere two weeks from Wednesday, so I can file a report. But I'm most interested to see what are the lighting designers going to do in a space that's so dominated by a video screen. I'm like when I was at uh, the Billy Joel Stevie Nicks show at Lincoln Financial, and what they do to create a space is just is just so amazing. You you wonder um, like how much does this change with the like I'm excited to see them stumble. I guess I'm excited to see <laughs> like what's their first take on this. Well, and it's hard, you know the the um, the the show that I mean the so. All of that stuff for most of these large concerts are all are all figured out at a big warehouse in in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so so there's a, or just north of Lancaster, and so they're you know so at at, at Rock Lidditz they have this they have these stages that they're that, that that they plan all those systems out. They don't change much once they get on tour because it's just you know nothing change nothing evolves once it's on tour, but it evolves a lot while it's in the warehouse. The hard part is you can't do that in the sphere because there's nowhere to there's nowhere to simulate it. So that they have to just they're gonna get to they've done as much as they could do. It's pencils down now. You have to do it in front of people and keep on evolving. Go ahead, Chris. I think the last thing I want to say that, that I like about a live show is um, is the stuff that isn't rehearsed. That stuff that breaks when when things go belly up. You get to really see uh, what a live band can do. I mean, if you want to talk about a great U2 moment, it would be the Live Aid performance that they did where there was a girl getting crushed in the front row and Bono climbed 20 feet down off the stage to help to get the security guys to pull her up. And they took, I think it was Bad that they started playing, and they stretched it to their whole fifteen-minute set. They did what they did one song song instead of three because Bono went off the rails, and you could see what a band could really do. And um, I think when things are too rehearsed and too perfect, it's like, meh, it's going to be fine because they rehearsed it a million times, and yeah, I don't care. Yeah, I think I want to see things go weird. I think that the 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 things that I've I've been to a couple shows. It's been my job for on and off for a couple decades. And, um, I, I almost never go as a, as a, you know, as a, as a participant, but, um, I look at what, what those moments are. And I think that, I think that Foo Fighters does, a, they do a pretty good job of pulling people out of, you know, I don't know how organized or unorganized it is when they pull people out, up, but having just random people come up and play a song with them is, is a lot of fun, you know, and I think it creates, you know, it creates these moments that you're not going to, that isn't just hearing their songs on a click track that they're all playing to, I think, to what, to your point. Um, I also think that the audience interaction, the bands that get really good at audience interaction um, are the ones that, I mean, that, that are singing with the audience, allow the audience to sing you know, with them as opposed to um, them just singing to the audience. I think the bands that get really good at that, if you go, if you ever go to a, I mean, I've been to a couple of Billy Bragg shows. He is a master. Like he will sit there and have the, I mean, for the songs that he knows that everybody knows, you know, um, you know, the, he'll sit there and just go back and forth with, uh, with the audience. And it's, it's really, then you, there's a reason that you were there. 
you know, his audiences aren't huge. So you'll get, you, I've never seen him in front of more than a couple thousand people, but his audiences are just this, you know, just, he just goes back and forth and they're, and it's really a, it's an amazing experience for the folks that are there. Cause you really feel like you're part of the show. Like you, like fans feel like they're part of a football game or something like that. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Is there a list of sub $150 27-inch monitors that can display 29.9 frames per second video feeds from switchers? Um, what I would what I would recommend is thinking about having a um, you know some kind of converter that would do that for you. So I would use an MDHX. It's not going to that's going to run your price up though. Um, you know, there's not that many that I know of that do 2997 specifically. So a lot of them are. Um, still end up back at 30. And then the other question I have for you is what you're doing with the 2997. <laughs> so, so the, you know, it, it would be really interesting to put in a request for, um, it It would make sense for Blackmagic on their switchers to output 30 because, you know, like run a show at 2997 because they've got all the Terranex stuff. Having the output be able to be 30 frames. And I haven't even looked at the switcher as to whether you can set the output um, frame rate to um, a whole frame um, but that, that would be an interesting puzzle is to be able to, because I think that they would be able, um, you know, to do that. But I don't know if maybe the Lilliputs um, would, would do those outputs at 2997. I, I, I've never seen a time when we plugged a Lilliput into a anything and it didn't work. <laughs> like it's not, a very, it's not a particularly expensive one. It's not, I don't know if they make any 27 inches. The, most of them, are, most of those are, when you get to 27 inch, um, you are getting to generally computer monitors or very small TVs. It's generally computer monitors. That's why they're expecting whole frames is they're not expecting to get anything other than whole frames because those are the computer monitors go up until about, I think, the 32-inch. 32 inches really thinks it's a TV. At that point, you may be able to find ones that are that are supporting it about 32. 27, up to 32, is it thinks it's a, a monitor. It's not expecting video. Next question. Next up comes from Thomas Jenkins in Clarksville. He goes, uh, has anyone tried color correcting ProRes log with iMovie on, on Mac? Where do you get LUTs? Apple released an update to support the new features, but I cannot find anything on how to use it. Jesse? I haven't worked in iMovie in quite some time, so I'm going to focus on where to get LUTs. Um, the first place you can look is online for free LUT packs or paid LUT packs. The trick with these is don't apply them at 100%. Ease off the global blend when you're um, when you're using LUT packs that you download from the internet. Uh, you can also build some in DaVinci Resolve, and someone on the panel can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you can export your LUTs even in the free version of Resolve. So if you want to jump in and start playing around with that, you can. I would recommend exporting at 33 points instead of 65, because 33 is just more compatible across uh, more devices, more more LUT input, uh, more LUT load in software. And finally, check your camera. If you're shooting on a Sony, they include the LUTs that you will need in the file tree folders, uh, folder tree files. You just have to find that LUT and bring it into your NLE. Yeah, and um, I wasn't sure what we we're going to do, but this 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 question has definitely pushed me over. For Thursday, we had a cancellation, so we had to move things around. And Thursday, we'll talk about the iPhone. <laughs> so we'll talk. I was trying to avoid doing another Apple-based uh, um, thing, uh, yet another one, but I think that we'll go ahead and do the iPhone because it just came out, and a couple of us have the cameras, and it's worth talking about this conversion log and all the different things that you can do with the cameras that are there. So so we'll put that into the into the emails that go out <laughs> that'll go out tomorrow. Um, the um, uh, so the way I just did this last night, 
um, I think this, there was a question about this earlier. I said, ask again on Monday. So I took my my footage that I shot. So I shot some um, long footage of my kids' recital, you know, at school, and um, at like ten x. This was a little soft, but it was still. Um, it was I was really far away, and I got just a one up of my of my kids playing. Um, so um, what the, what I needed to do to make that work was to set it to your color space, your input color space. So I did it in Resolve. So I did it in. Did it in Final Cut. Final Cut will automatically see it and just want to do Apple Log or whatever. And so it works. It looks okay in Final Cut. The auto, kind of the automatic Final Cut version of it um, was okay. You know, not not great. Um, so what I did is I took it into um, uh, Resolve and I uh, set it to Rec 2020, the input uh, color space to Rec 2020. And then there is an Apple log. There's now an Apple log in the in the uh, gamma. So I did Apple log. Um, so Rec 2020 Apple log, and then I, out I went Rec 709A, Rec 709A, and it came out looking pretty good. And then I added a node to it to to you know increase the contrast a little bit and move the gamma back and forth a little bit to make it to correct it. Uh, I, I'm sure that it could be done better. I did that all in about ten minutes, <laughs> so it's uh, it's there. But it, it is now in the if you've updated Final Cut, you'll see a Apple Log um, uh, uh, capability there. Again, the the tools in Final Cut to do the final color correction are a little bit more um, uh, crude compared to Resolve. So you, so I I didn't I, I spent a little time there to see if it worked. I didn't try it in iMovie, uh, but we'll we'll take a look at that. But we'll talk about that more on Thursday. We'll we'll bring some more clips in and and play with it. It's it does take an amazing amount of uh, I, I, a, a three minute clip was twenty one gigs. You know, when I on my phone, <laughs> it's kind of an incredible. And when you when you go to record it and you set it to 4k 60 it you get this little error message on your phone that says you you need external an external drive to record 4k 60 on your iphone which i thought was kind of the most amazing message ever that you that we can now not only does it support a drive going out of your phone but it requires you to have one if you want to record at that level it truly has become a real production camera which is why we'll talk about it on thursday uh, next question Next up is Douglas Carmichael. He goes, according to discussions on Reddit, the MSG Sphere uses LAWO, L-A-W-O, PowerCore routing. La, is a, it LAWO? Okay. It's a W, but it's a B. It's a, okay, LAVO. Okay. So MSG Sphere uses LAVO PowerCore routing engis, engines to accept up to 128 Dante channels to steer within the venue. How would you try? How would a traveling production conceivably interface their Dante network with the Sphere? Uh, there won't be any traveling uh, productions that go into the sphere. Um, these are all going to be um, residencies. So there's no way that a traveling production can tie into the sphere. I mean, well, there is a way. I just don't think it'll... It, no one's going to spend the money that it's required to make the sphere work with a band that's coming in with a generalized system um, to integrate it. It's always going to be a residency um, because it just takes too much setup time. It takes, you know, it, to tune the... Because you have to make an entire experience for the screen. For every one of these, my guess is it's somewhere between three and six months of planning from the previs to the, you know, all the other things just to have a band come in. So, you know, I think U2 is how, how uh, I think they're there for three or four months at least. So so I think that that's, you know, but that's what you're going to see is that they, to, to get the ROI out of it, they'll have to plan it and have that, that band there for a long time. So I don't think that would happen. Next question. Next up is Brian Shan from Sydney, Sydney, Australia. He goes, AES and NAB New York is less than a month away. What's the panel hoping to see? 
Does anyone have any specific hopes that the things that they want to look at? Uh, we're going to have a table there. So we've got a, we actually have a 20 by 10 space um, and a table there, uh, courtesy of NAB. So thank you very much to NAB there. Um, and uh, so we'll be covering uh, both of those. We're going to have a little bit of a table. We have either, we should have two live views that are roaming around as well. Um, and so, uh, so we should, you know, we, we expect to have longer coverage because we have more, more uh, footprint to it. Um, and we're, we're going to try to cover that. So we will be taking over Wednesday and Thursday of that week um, it's, uh, for the office hours at 7 o'clock um, to, um, to, do, to cover NAB. And then we'll probably extend past that, that start time um, to cover some more things there. But if, you're, if you uh, do have interest, let us know. Um, you, you can, I think there's a discussion in, in Discord, but do let us know what you'd like to see um, as we do the final planning for the, for the layout. Next question. Craig Kadoki from Toronto uh, is following, asking for a follow-up for a Saturday question about QT recording. In high quality, all inputs from a multi-channel audio I.O. get summed to mono on channel 3 in a 7.1 file. In max qual quality, it records all channels independently. Using a Digico USB interface gives me a video with 48 audio tracks. The reason it's summing them all into channel three in a seven one file is because it thinks that channel three is the center channel. So it is when if for, for whatever reason I don't know why it's 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 saying oh you want mono, um, it may if you're compressing it, um, in all high. But what it's doing for whatever reason is is uh, it's deciding that you want mono. And I don't know why it's deciding that, but mono would be um, if it if it went down to one channel, it's going to put it in, in a and it's any kind of surround file five one seven one seven one four nine one six whatever that is, it's going to grab onto channel three and put it there because that's the it's the center channel. Oh, by the way, funny thing about watching football on YouTube now is the commercials are in stereo, but the but the whole game is in. Um, is in five one, or at least the games the games I was watching, and you'll notice that the speakers change. I mean, if you have a five one system or a seven one system, that the commercials are all coming with a phantom center, and the games come in down the actual center. Uh, it's an inter I thought it was interesting. It took me a little while. I, I felt like I was getting disoriented by the by the, by the uh, commercials until I realized what was happening. Uh, next question. Next up is Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany. He goes. I used a, a MacBook Pro and a Windows PC over an ATEM Mini Pro. There was a constant flickering on the projection when the Mac was on. The PC was stable. It was a little better when used with the USB-C to HDMI adapter instead of the built-in interface. And I'm not sure what the built-in interface means there. So... Um, you know, the, maybe the built-in HDMI to HDMI. Flickering, I think that the flickering is is that the Mac, for some reason, isn't uh, doing 25 frames a second. If you're in Germany, the Mac may be going to 30 instead of 25, so I would take a look at whether you're doing, uh, yeah, whether you're on a, um, yeah, I think that that would be the thing that I would look for is look at your frame rate and make sure that your frame rate's locked. It may not be locking it correctly. Um, it should, basically it should negotiate between the, the switcher where it goes, what do you, what do you want, <laughs> you know, in that area. And the switcher should tell it what it wants. And then, it, and then it, you know, that handshake should happen there, but it may not be. So you may want to look at your computer and make sure that your computer is set to the 25 output. 
Um, I will say that I, I've noticed that if my, um, when I restart my ATEM switcher with that little gray bug or whatever, I lose a bunch of my inputs from some of my computers. Um, mostly just my studio will drop out the screen that goes into the switcher and I have to un unplug it and plug it back in again. So it could be a, uh, I would, I would definitely try to unplug and plug in your, your cable to see if that makes any, any difference because it'll cause it to renegotiate. Code Jeffrey. Uh, yeah, Jonas is uh, chiming in on this over on the chat. He goes, this sadly is a typical issue seen with the Macs. Don't know resolution, but it's just, uh, it's not just you. It might be something that's more of a European thing too, but again, in this 25 or 30 frame per second cadence, because it's not something that I have ever seen here. And I have uh, four Macintosh or five Macs plugged into my switcher right now. Um, so I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know what would cause it. I've never seen a flicker from the Mac at all. Yeah, good guy. Yeah, I'm also wondering which port that it's plugged into. If it's plugged into um, HDMI 1 on a ATEM that's game mode, and so there might not be any scaling going on, so try switching it over to number 2, 3, or 4. Those all have Terranex scalers on them. And then see if the... Um, it, there is... It used to be called ResX. was a uh, app that let you get these off kilter uh, resolutions. There's a new one. It's not super stable, but there is one in the app store that's meant for Sonoma that you can try uh, or Catalina or one of these other operating systems and get the right sync so it handshakes correctly. Yeah. And, and um, I never let it, I, I know it's set there, but you can, you can hard set the frame rate for the switcher as well. So always remember that as well. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Chris. The other thing I was going to say is for a MacBook Pro, you know, the default screen is not 169, it's 1610. So maybe there's some sort of resolution wonkiness going on as it's trying to it change should, it down to 169. Yeah, I mean, generally the, the Mac does a pretty good job of that where, it, you know, if it, if it sees a 1080p screen, it just gives you 1080p at this point. So, um, I mean, I, and I don't know, because all of my screens are 16 by 9, 1080p, and it doesn't seem to have any problem. And again, it doesn't have a problem with my switcher either. So it may be a some kind of cadence with the, but I would definitely, I do think that guy might be onto something with the input one. You have to be kind, kind of careful about what you put into input one. It's a little, it, if, if, if you allow the switcher to be defining it based on that input, um, I go in there and just set it, you know, like this is what I want, um, which is another setting that you have there on the, on the ATEM. Quick reminder that you can ask questions throughout the hours. So if, you, um, if you've got questions, you can either um, throw them in for the first or second hour. We'll keep track of it. Uh, just let us know if it's the second hour if you're typing it in. But um, uh, you can go ahead and throw those questions in via askofficehours.com, or you can use that little QR code there. Um, you can also uh, uh, go ahead and use it in Makana, of course, and make sure to vote on those questions so that we know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Next question. Next up is Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach, and he goes, anyone try the new Mac OS presenter overlay feature? Is it, is it a virtual camera to Zoom, or does it only affect whatever you're screen sharing? Well, there is a virtual camera that's there, so I, I don't know if that's the one that you're that you're looking at there. Um, but there's a you know Apple now has a camera in Sonoma that will, it'll just handshake as a camera, and then you have a lot of things that you can do with it within there. Uh, because I'm probably not going to be using Sonoma anytime soon, I think that oh, on my main computer that's here, I may do it. I'm, I'm I have a Zoom machine that I'm kind of configuring. Maybe I'll put it on there so I can try it out. But uh, it usually takes me a little longer to test any of the Mac OS stuff. Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Nigel. Yeah, you have to be sharing something to to make it work. So okay. you can't you can't turn it on any other way. Most of us 
bring whatever we're sharing in from another machine using our ATEM. So I don't tend to use it, but it's in sharing. Um, you do have to be careful of the hand signals. Um, um, I've lots of people who got confused because I did that to someone the other day and uh, a box appeared like you did there and that threw them. So be careful of that. Yeah, go, go ahead, Chris. I don't know why those things don't work for me. By the way, I've put Sonoma on everything, even my main edit machine. I'm in the middle of a opening video that's 8,400 pixels by whatever. Uh, no fears, d- did it. Got it over with. Moving forward. Welcome to the future. You know, I did that last year, and uh, I I paid a pretty heavy price for it. So I, I I'm not going to probably do that do that again. Um, next question. Next question comes from Eric Hers from uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Fast and Avod are growing rapidly, but can anyone, even Apple, compete against Google and Am- Amazon's streaming distribution cost advantage? Well, I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that Apple needs to compete with them. I mean, I think they're they are providing, um, as far as the, you know, I, I think that they provide a really great solution for those things. And I, I don't know if there's any reason for other people to. I don't know how who's going to try to compete with that. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Competition is overrated. I think uh, you know, back in the late '90s, I think it was maybe early 2000s. Uh, maybe late 90s, everybody's saying, well, oh, Apple only has 2% of the market share or 3%, whatever. And they had a great ad where they, it was, uh, they said, yeah, BMW has 3% of their market share too. Like, it doesn't matter. Uh, just do what you do, do it well. If you build it, they will come, you know? I mean, it, it, forget trying to compete with other people, just compete with yourself. Be, be great. People will come. Well, and I, I think that the, the, the hard part is, is that, uh, you know, I think that people have kind of settled into, there's a handful of things that they're using related to how they, how they watch distribution. And so they're not, um, that people are watching it, they're using their TV and they're just using the built-in apps or they're using an Apple TV or they're using a couple other things. And, and I think that the companies that are trying to, even the Roku's and so on and so forth, I mean, they'll continue to have a, a, a vertical, but I think that that's going to be a pretty specific one. It's a little, um, I think that a lot of people that I know are either using their TV, their Apple TV, or some kind of version of a Chromecast. I really haven't seen anybody, when I talk to people, I don't, in the real, in the real world, <laughs> I don't know of anybody using anything else. Uh, next question. Back to Miami Beach with uh, Jeff Cohen. He goes, can you talk about how collaboration works in DaVinci Resolve with their Blackmagic cloud functionality? Jesse? It works very, very well. And we've moved almost all of our post-production off to remote sites using Blackmagic Cloud. First thing we do is we build out a Mac Mini and we send that to the editor. We build it out with the... um, with uh, Resolve, a studio license, and an already loaded account to the cloud. Um, we take all, all of our files, um, we build proxies, very, very light proxies, upload them to uh, any given server. You can do this more simply through Blackmagic, but we haven't gotten there yet. They download the proxies, relink them to the projects, they do all the editing remotely on the cloud, then we open up those projects over here, uh, swap out proxies for the original 4K footage or 6K footage and then export. It's a very, very intuitive workflow and there's great communication tools with the notes that you can load up when you open the project and all of our timelines are covered in markers with notes from the editors to us and from us to the editors. So far, nothing but great reviews for the cloud service they have. 
Are you sending them an extra hard drive for that, or is it something that they're just using the internal drive that's within the Mac Minis? It depends. Um, if the project is large and we need to get a lot of files to them, we'll send them a 12 terabyte or whatever. But if we can get it all onto the Mac Mini when we send it to them, we usually send it on the Mac Mini. Uh, the problem with that is that they have to send it back if they want to unload that footage and load new footage on it. So we we hew a little bit closer to uh, to the hard drives than we do to loading onto the Mac Minis. And when you're syncing, can you... Are, now, you have all that footage already there, but when you're syncing, can you... Um, define that they're only going to ever see proxies, like when you're uploading stuff, or is that how? How does that work? Like, so if they're, we, yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's a, a a lot baked into that question. There's no one answer to that. But what we do is we build the proxies and have them relink those not as proxies, but as the actual footage that they're editing. So uh, there's a lot of um, ATEM level native built. Uh, H.264 files, which we don't right. consider proxies. We call those the ATEM native builds. Right. Uh, we build proxies of those and then have them use the proxies as the actual native build footage. Then we switch the native build out for the raw when we Got get it. back to our, our end. Got it. Next question. Next question comes from David Brady in New York, New York. He goes, I realize that Pixelmator has a direct export to motion projects. Has anyone played with this? I have not played with that. Um, uh, I don't know what I would do with it. <laughs> I don't know what. I guess. I guess it allows you to build up the, your layers, and so that if you want to build something out in Pixelmator, you can then export that out as a as you know just the layers, and then you can start animating them in motion. You know, go ahead, Jesse. That that is exactly what what you do with it. Um, so we've got uh, a build in Pixelmator Pro. We've got three shapes on a white background. All you got to do is go up to File. Um, export and then switch over to motion project uh, frame rate you pick your frame rate and the duration I'm going to cancel because I already did it and then we go over to you can load it up in motion and there you've got all of the items that you built ready for animation in a 10 second timeline at 30 frames per second that's great I'm really curious to see what happens at the uh, summit that happens uh, next month. Um, you know, where a lot of us are kind of, or is it later this month? Is it later this month or next month that, that the summit happens? Um, the uh, There's a lot of concern <laughs> on, in the community related to the fact that Apple did a, apps made by Apple and listed everything except for motion and compressor. So that was, you know, like everyone was kind of like, what's going on? So, so we'll see. Uh, hopefully the, the summit will clear up some of the clouds there. Um, next question. Next up is Jeff Cohen from Miami Beach. He goes, has anyone used the transcription feature in Fairlight? How accurate is it on average? Go, Jesse. Jesse? I am not sure if I've used the transcription feature in Fairlight. We use the DaVinci Resolve transcription all the time. Pretty much every video we export for, we, we deliver to clients now, we do a automatic transcription. Uh, DaVinci is very sensitive when it comes to automatic transcriptions. It is uh, very context sensitive. And we've noticed that if the video is about Star Trek, it will crowbar more vocabulary to be things that match with Star Trek. If it's about Japanese ramen making, it'll crowbar the the language to be more context sensitive to Japanese ramen. Like it looks at the whole video and seems to understand a broader context than sentence by sentence, word by word. Uh, we've tested it against um, Adobe Premiere's auto-generate and YouTube's auto-generate and Resolve is very far ahead of the others. Next question. 
Next up is John Foles from Sealands Grove, uh, Pennsylvania. He goes, I have an NDI setup with about 10 or 11 inputs. What's the purpose of a discovery server? Should I be using it? Guy? Yeah, discovery server is like a directory, essentially. It's very lightweight. If you were to install it on a Windows machine, you'd see uh, if you open it up that it's just saying listening and sources. So once you go into a source machine, let's say it's a Mac mini and you launch Access Manager and you enter in the discovery information uh, where that server you, is at, you point it to it. And now things just pop because there's there's not any of this uh, MDNS directory lookup and taking a lag, it just pops. So the reason to use the discovery server is there's, there's less multicast traffic going on. Uh, so at a school or something like that, where there's lots of uh, things wanting to listen, you can just point it right to it and it'll pop and hit right to it. So I like to use a discovery discovery server because everything is just so much faster and more reliable. So you just got to make sure that you go into each machine or device, like some of my bird dog encoders will say, do you want to use a discovery server? And I say yes, and point it to that IP address. And then it's just super fast and you don't have this, this thing of where's my stuff. It just pops up every single time. So yeah, once you get to that level of more than a couple devices, I like to use a discovery server. Next question. Next up is Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. He goes, when filming live at a conference, are you lighting or compensating for the indoor lighting? Ryan? Yeah, so uh, Alex and Jeffrey can probably speak more to what's going on at office hours conferences, but just at kind of the the typical technology conference or, you know, a more corporate focused event that I'm at. One thing that I see people really screwing up not so much is lighting, but rather kind of framing and audio. So when I see folks at their booth, and I see this all the time with their colleagues standing 10 or 15 feet away, filming them on an iPhone, um, and I know exactly where that's going. It's going to LinkedIn, and they're using the iPhone's microphone from 15 feet away, and they're going to post that, and there's a ton of background noise. So if there's one thing that somebody can do to, to really tighten that up, it's get a microphone on the actual um, speaker and probably from a framing perspective, get way closer um, as well. Jeffrey? Uh, when I've done conferences, especially something that where lighting is technically not involved, it's just basically a, a bunch of windows where lighting changes dramatically during the day. Uh, there's a lot of things that I will do to compensate for lighting. And the biggest thing is to try and get curtains on those in those windows, especially if the windows are behind you. When it comes for a regular conference, if they change the lighting, a lot of the times there's not much you can do about it. Uh, but yeah, definitely have your uh, have something that can change some iris, change some shutter, and uh, be able to uh, make uh, changes if it becomes a drastic change. Yeah, and I think that one of the questions is whether it's a conference or an expo. So at, at an expo, we're mostly just responding to whatever lighting we have there. I have taken, you know, light sources in, whether they're camera mounted or we've actually taken um, uh, Airstar makes these little ones that look like little balloons. And we've actually used those, um, to, which look great. But it's just really cumbersome. You have to look at the speed at which you can move around. Um, and so we've kind of learned not to do that just because it was taking too long to get. It was the each segment looked better. It just took too long to get from segment to segment. A lot of these expos can get pretty busy. So we, we looked at that as well. Um, when it comes to, you know, someone on stage, usually um, when we're doing something, we're lighting it um, to make that actually happen. So, so that's, that's often the case. But, but I think that uh, when we're going from place to place, we're usually just responding to what, what is there. Um, I do think that at some point expos, uh, uh, will start to build themselves more ready for shooting. 
Um, and I think that's somewhere in the future. Um, but I think that right now we're still kind of adjusting to that and it's just been good enough so far. Next question. Next question, once again, from Jack Rupel. Are you giving up on the 360 link camera? Limited your use? Ryan? I have two, one at home and one at the office, and one did recently die on me, so definitely experiencing some reliability issues there. Uh, but I replaced it and uh, am not giving up on it yet. If it happens again, then I might make another uh, different decision. Guy? I'm using one right now. I'm on the road, so I'm in this hotel that... You know, I can zip around and it's pretty cool for that kind of stuff. So it's better than packing around my big stuff and uh, it does the job. I mean, I would, I'd like something with a larger sensor right now, but you know, cause if you've noticed this uh, lighting behind me, it's been drastically changing throughout the show because it's California and these are big windows. And uh, I think it looks pretty good for, for 300 bucks. I mean, you can't argue. And then I'm using these, uh, these cool aperture lights, the, MT pros with it that are pretty fancy. So that's a setup and it works pretty well for on the road. Chris? I'm using it too. I haven't bothered to set up my black magic since I moved locations and it's just lazy. But uh I hate this door, but I like this view. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, I, I um, still look at using them for multi-camera, like when we're trying to cover things. I think for my main camera, I did become pretty addicted to having at least a Super 35 sensor. So I'm using right now the EV10, and I think on the road, I'll be still continuing to use the FX30. And I find that, you know, even when I'm in a hotel, I'm worse. I, I, what I thought would be, I was using the, the Insta360 link for hotels. I thought that I would, I'd be okay with it. I found that at a hotel, I was far more sensitive to short depth of field than I was at home um, because I was, uh, there was all kinds of stuff behind me that would bother me. So, I mean, I think the guy's looks great because it's a good looking hotel room and it's not, you know, I think that his, his work's just fine. For me, I was in just a variety of hotel situations where I really wanted the things, everything behind me to be out of focus. <laughs> and so, uh, so I just was in kind of cramped uh, hotel rooms that just didn't really work. And so, uh, so I, I, I did find that that was kind of the, so now I've kind of, because of that, I've really moved to what I'm really interested in looking at is what, what happens with the Sony and whether we can get a good output from the Sony LR1, um, which, which is expensive, but it's a full frame sensor. That's the size of a webcam, um, or just slightly bigger than a webcam. It's not shipping yet, but I could see that someday making it into my pack. Um, next question. Next up is Nigel DeSalle uh, from Austin, Texas, and he goes, Apple may buy the F1 TV rights. A reason for the Vision Pro headset? Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, Nigel talked about kind of some other potential use cases there, and I'm a little bit more intrigued by the, uh, the use cases from a professional perspective to actually drive sales there since the initial sale price is so high, but uh, certainly when it comes to personal entertainment content, that's probably going to be right up there with the best of it. Nigel. Oh, can't hear you. Oh, can't hear you, Nigel. Oh, can you hear me now? Sorry about that. We can. Um, I apologize. Um, most of us looked at the Vision Pro headset, and I think you've said it well, Alex, that this is not for the mass market. This is early adopter, very early adopter stuff. But but there may be some killer apps that emerge or killer you know, use cases that change that. And the F1 media has been very excited recently by the idea that Apple may pay $2 billion for the, for the rights, the worldwide rights, which is, I think, almost double what they're currently getting to, to cover F1. 
And in the last couple of years, they've been putting in their helmets, cams, and they, they're relatively little use in the broadcast. But if you subscribe to the service, you can actually watch that cam. And I have to tell you, it's a very yeah, in, interesting and exciting thought that you might be able to get in the car in the helmet of your favorite driver and watch them do a lap. And well, $3,500 is a lot of money. There are opportunities, I think, like that that could really break through to test and prove and find an audience for that type of device. So would I go that far? I don't know. But that's the first thing I've heard where I thought, oh, now that got interesting. Go, Jeffrey. So all these streaming networks are starting to really buy up all the sports rights. And, uh, and I, so what, you, what, what does Apple have when it comes to sports? So F1 makes uh, perfect sense right there. You know, uh, you have uh, all the footballs going to like uh, Paramount and uh, YouTube. And, and then, of course, uh, if you want to watch any pro wrestling, WWE style, you got to go over to Peacock. Uh, so I, it, it makes sense that, we're, that they're just putting their hat into a sport so they can get in there as for it being something on the vision pro that it, it, it'd be a great idea to have that from the cockpit look but uh it's going to be a lot of work to do if they do it go ahead chris hey nigel i'm curious how much more do i have to pay so i can talk to the guy who's home at i mean that'd be fun <laughs> hey nice be- turn maybe you should pass this guy you think you want to win this race or what I mean, I'm just thinking. That'd be fun. Yeah, actually, if you if you actually, they won't allow you to talk to anybody, Chris. Uh, I'm out. Especially you. They might let Nigel talk because he'd be soothing. He'd be like, you're going, you're doing so well. I have to tell you, if you... But Chris, they'd be like, no, not Chris. You can listen to the race engineer and the driver talk throughout the race. And that is a a not for young children, I would tell you, but it's a very interesting experience. Yeah, and and you know it is a it, we we did some experimentation with this in the past, not not at the nearly the level that Apple's doing. Here's a um, here's a shot of us installing a Teradek encoder with a. This was uh, Mary Andretti has this uh, two seater for the Indy, um, and uh, so we, we we were like, hey, let's put someone in the back seat, and then we'll talk to them live. And so we built a grid in the Sonoma Raceway, and um, so we built a, a wireless grid, a wireless uh, network, so that you could he could go around, and we thought that there would be. Um, the person on the back would have a great conversation about how great it was, but mostly it was just them swearing and grunt, grunting as they, they like, all you heard was, oh, you know, as, as, he, as he started hitting all the corners. And so, um, but, but these are little GoPros, but I can imagine what we found that was interesting there was that the, um, uh, that the, what I'd really love to see is a, I think a, a um, even a rectilinear, but a, but a dual 180 that sat, in the little piece, the little headpiece that sits right over top of where the where the racer is, where you might see just a little bit of their head in front of you, and then you and you and if you got it just right, you might even see their their steering wheel, which has a, is basically a console, right? And and um, and then be able to see everything in three sixty. I think that that would that could be really you know. I think that would be really hard on the stomach, but probably better because the, the problem is they do move their head a little bit, and so it, what happens is when you get a lot of head movement in a VR goggles it, it's disorienting um but if you get it on to something relatively stable especially if you're able to stabilize that and if they're going to spend two billion dollars on the, the rights i can imagine that they would spend a lot of money figuring out where to put stereo cameras on the car then you'd have to have an extra person in the pit who just goes out and wipes the bugs off of the off of it every time it, every time it pulls over um to do that but i i think that 
you know, because the Apple headset is really driven towards people being seated and the car is, you know, obviously mostly seated, I think it's a pretty interesting... Um, Hopefully. Yeah, 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 exactly. But but I think, and I also think just, just even some of the stuff on the track of being able to put a camera where you couldn't stand. You know, we can put you, we can put you in a camera where the cars are going by, where it would be, you know, very dangerous to stand in. Um, I think that that's a really interesting opportunity. So um, I think that Apple, you know, I think you're going to see Apple can just use the fact that $2 billion is then rolling off a couple, you know, <laughs> rolling off a couple things on the outside of the stack. Um, they can compete in a way that other broadcasters, uh, you know, can't. Yeah, what were you going to say, Chris? I was going to say, if you haven't seen it yet, I started watching the Gran Turismo movie last night. It's Isn't really it fun. Is it it's, fun? It's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, and you know, it's a true story, right? Yeah, it's based on a true story. I don't, it's, yeah. I don't think the movie is a true story. It is. I have, like I have decided life is more based. exciting when I just erase the word based out of my vocabulary. I just, I just glaze over that. It's a true right. story. It's true totally story. true. Yeah, exactly. Everything about the movie is true. You know, the funny thing is most of the time you could be true and it would still, it would be great. And, you know, Hollywood screws it up. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Paul Walhus, who's based out of Austin, Texas. Right to repair movement gives consumers the right to repair their own electronic devices rather than being forced to rely on the manufacturer. What devices support this? Go ahead, John. Oh, boy, is this a great topic. I, I think this all started with, uh, with John Deere tractors, where they, the, the dealers had them all locked up, and you had to go and use that. And, then, and it's moved to states. So several states have actually passed right to repair laws. And Lewis Rossman, if you watch him on YouTube, this a board repair guy. He's all about this, and he's, and he's spoken in front of several of the legislatures to get this passed. But remember the Apple stuff? If you wanted to fix your glass on your Apple, they'd send you two big Pelican cases. That was to appease the journalist because of the right to repair. It's, uh, it's a cluster. There you go, Jesse. If a company is bricking a device that you try to repair on your own, that is so completely unethical, it, it boggles the mind. Uh, but the right to repair is not necessarily a right to repair simply. So you can swap out parts of your iPhone, and it won't brick the iPhone, but that doesn't mean it's easy to swap out the battery for the average user. And that's where things get really dicey. Jeffrey? And as being a, an IT person, uh, having the, the ability to actually be able to do any type of repairs in-house is uh, always welcome. Uh, I used to love HP and Dell because not only would they send you the parts they online, you could go and you could actually find out how to take it apart, put it back together. When it comes to mobile devices, if somebody's got something, especially if they've got something that's uh, got high security on it, uh, having the ability to bring it in-house to repair it, that way, uh, they they know that there's no data that's going to be leaking out to the masses. I swapped my battery on my laptop once, once. <laughs> it was never quite the same, and I pretty much uh, have given up on any kind of right to. I, they, they can give me a right to repair, but I won't repair it myself. And I would never want to hand off something that has, has that much personal information to somebody else. So I take really good care of my of my uh, phone. If I lose my if my phone breaks. Um, I want a new one. Like I don't, I don't want, I don't want to go back to the one that I had. I just, it's and the idea that you'd send it to somebody and have them pull it apart. Uh, there's a reason that that a lot of the Apple stuff is pretty touchy, is because there's a lot of security features in there, and so once you open it up, you can invalidate those. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Many years ago, I was helping a friend buy a laptop, and I recommended, look, I would buy the Apple RAM, but you could do this and save a few hundred bucks, and we'll we could install the RAM for you. 
I broke her brand new computer by trying to put the RAM in. Super embarrassing. Uh, you know, super I, frustrating. For desktops is one thing, is but for anything that starts to have it's like a, a guy's face. Yeah, I mean, for anything that for me that is, uh, you know, it is these phones are not. They're built to be waterproof. You know, they're built to be, you know, tight and small and everything else. They're not built to be torn apart. You know, like and and without a lot of specialized tools and someone who does it all the time. And so the idea that you're going to have a you know a um, civilian open these things up and be able to do something re- reasonable. I I think that I I think that Apple sent this out to make everybody happy. But if you order the equipment from Apple, you are crazy. Like you are absolutely nuts. And um, I think that you know, and Apple's letting you like here are the tools that we use. They're not dumbing them down. And I think that's a good idea because it's just absolutely nuts to take a, an iPhone apart if you haven't done it like a hundred times and and trained and took all the courses and did all the things. It's just just oh, I don't understand. Yeah, go ahead, CJ. The other thing that I'll mention as uh, an ex fruit stand person who used to have to repair these things. I can't stress the one thing that everybody overlooks is electrostatic discharge. Get the mat, get the little grounding bracelet. These transistors are so small that static electricity that's barely perceptible to a human is going to potentially wreck your logic board. I, uh, I, I, I've told the story before, but I, w- I used to work in mainframes. We'd wire mainframes up that you could walk into, and a guy wa- was about to go in and just, just, a, just a tighten a screw. And I, was, I remember I was 18 years old, and I was like, I don't think you should do that. I think you should put a wristband on. And, and he was like, oh, I'm just tightening the screw. And a little spark just jumped off of his uh, screwdriver and did a quarter million dollars of damage in less than a second. <laughs> so he, he didn't even get back to his desk. Like, literally, they walked him out of the, out of the, out of the building, and that was it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, next question. Next question comes from Michael Marsh uh, from San Anselmo. He's going. I'm performing a digital. I'm performing digital archaeology. Is there a Mac app that will read floppy disks, or do you have to find an old machine? Uh, no, you should be able to. If you get a USB to floppy disk, uh, it, it should show up. Um, you know, I, I I haven't done it recently, but I've done it as recently as like four or five years ago. We had to pull up a floppy, and it shows up as a USB device. A USB device that's very small because <laughs> it's just a floppy disk. But you can buy floppy disks. They, they'll have a USB interface, and they will. Um, the last time I tried was again five or six years ago. They worked just fine. Go ahead, Chris. I'm dying of curiosity. What was on a floppy five years ago that you needed to get? Uh, it was a, there was some, <laughs> some images that I found. It was mostly a curiosity on the, flo- that I had a floppy disk and I was like, I wonder what's on <laughs> you this. You found you a know, floppy like in was, the bottom of a drawer? <laughs> I did. It was the bottom of a box, you know, and, um, and uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, so that was, yeah, you know, <laughs> next question. Next question comes from Lenny Nelson from San Antonio. I tend to avoid antivirus software as it usually is more of a problem than a solution. Policies are dictating that we use CrowdStrike antivirus on our Macs. Anyone have experience with this? Uh, on a Mac and an antivirus? Uh, sure. <laughs> like if they, like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, who, who on a Mac uses antivirus software? Anyway, I, I, um, maybe that would be the case. I, I, it's not, it's a, I, I, you know, if, if your policy, if your company policy is to do that, then I would go ahead and and do it. When in Rome, do as the Romans. But I don't understand how that would make any difference. Next question. Next question comes from Philip Oler from Ketna, New York. 
Best AI application for video resolution improvement, including increasing resolution and improving compression and artifacts. Well, okay, improving compression artifacts. John, real quick, we only got a couple couple seconds. I I think wait for Adobe's uh, Max coming later this month. Yeah, I mean, I think the resolution stuff is, I was trying to think of the company that does the really good res, um, cleanup, but I can't think of it at the moment. But um, the uh, as far as cleaning up artifacts, um, it's really hard to do that well unless you've oversampled it. So um, so take you might want to think about, about that. It's, it's, there's not, I haven't seen a lot of good ways to actually do that. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll see some, some more stuff at Adobe Max. Let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour. And today we're going to be talking about bidding. So how do we uh, bid projects? How do we avoid scope creep? How do we bid so that we can avoid scope creep? How do we put those things uh, into that puzzle? And it's, it, you know, it's, it's a really important thing. Some people will bid very quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, you know, that can be a, um, you know, that can be a challenge, you know, so there's a couple different ways that, that we'll start to bid and I'll be ready to throw this over to the team here as soon as they raise their hand. <laughs> Let me know who to throw it to there. Um, the, uh, but the, as far as, you know, I can tell you for, for bidding, you know, a lot of times I build a project to bid. So I, I build the whole thing out. It takes me a long time to get that done. Um, it takes me a, uh, um, I have to, you know, think about the entire project, exactly how much it's going to cost. I draw all those things out before I actually build the, build the bid. Um, and uh, so the, the, that's, you know, that's how I approach that process. And I think a lot of people will, you know, and I think that there's a linkage here we'll talk about probably as we go through this, of the difference between um, uh, the ability to, um, uh, when we, when we bid these projects out, the, having someone technical involved as well as the salesperson. And sometimes those are the same people and that's what works the best, but it takes the longest. <laughs> so, so it's, but you, uh, but you have to kind of figure that out. Great. Go ahead, Craig. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Alex. Uh, so as you mentioned, this is part of a uh, overall series we're doing on project management. Uh, and actually let me flip to see if I do this right. Hopefully that's showing up. Uh, this is some of the uh, project management uh, episodes coming up. Uh, today we're actually covering, as you said, the uh, more the scoping, uh, more the, the pricing rather, the pricing and bidding. It's really part of a, uh, two parts, which is the scoping and costing, uh, which is an important part. Today we're going to be covering more of the end of that, which is taking that cost and then looking at the market and your customer and saying, how do we price this? How do we price it to make a fair amount of money, reduce the risk, and then repeat that over and over again? And a lot of it is very specific to, you know, whatever uh, business you're in. Uh, uh, But we'll talk about some of the subjects and we've got a great panel here. Uh, that uh, I'd like to just run through quickly just so that you can get a sense of where we're all coming from, what our experience is. Uh, just I'll go first just because I'm on camera right now. Uh, so I'm Craig McFarland, CTO, co-founder of a company, uh, software company. We've been around for about 20 years. We focus on really large IT transformations, data center consolidation, move to the cloud, all that sort of stuff. Uh, our projects tend to be in the 
uh, price range of 200,000 all the way up to, you know, eight to 10 million. Uh, we do it for uh, large uh, global companies as well as banks, uh, hospital chains, anybody with a fair amount of infrastructure. Uh, and obviously each one of those customers is going to have their own uh, culture, uh, expectations, process, and all of that. So I'll be weaving in on some of those topics. Uh, so let's go around the uh, horn to the uh, uh, other panelists. Uh, Mark, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yes, I'm Mark Giuliani from Giuliani Associates, uh, where I'm president of the company. We're a small architecture and engineering firm that works on projects that are anywhere from 200 square feet for a coffee kiosk to over 100,000, 200,000 square feet for vehicle maintenance like aircraft hangars and fleets. Uh, we do also design nice in high-end products like airline lounges. So we have a wide spectrum of designs and do a lot of uh, bidding. And Ryan, you want to jump in? Yes, good morning, everybody. Uh, Ryan Rademan here in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I am focused on the uh, on the construction industry. I do uh, software projects for construction, digital transformation, similar to uh, similar to Craig. And so not only do I have to spend a lot of time uh, estimating, scoping, bidding projects, but sometimes the software that we're implementing for construction companies is designed to help them do uh, just that. So excited to be here today and continue the uh, continue the project management series. Awesome. And CJ, are you uh, are you reading or are you part of the panel? No, I'm part of the panel. I'm all good. Uh, so CJ Covell, I work for a, uh, my family is in the building materials industry. So we produce exterior cladding with metal panels. Uh, I've done on almost every, being a family business I've done almost everything uh, that you can do currently uh, I I just moved from sales in the architectural and commercial division on large projects to moving over to looking after our supply chain and also our information systems so I've uh, I get a lot of I'm presented with a lot of bits uh, from both uh, construction companies but also from technology companies and then we also we have to sell too so it's uh i'm kind of it's sitting at the intersection awesome so good variety of uh views let me flip over to um promise just to have like two or three slides here uh just so we're all on the same page uh, so obviously uh this is pretty basic stuff we're uh, going to be talking about when you get requests for uh, project services or whatnot. Uh, you go through an exercise of scoping to understand uh, what's involved in it and, and where the variables are, putting that into some sort of cost and then get into what we're talking about today, which is really the pricing of how do we uh, then extend that to a price where we have a fair amount of margin. Uh, and if I go to the next slide, there we go. Uh, this is always a funny thing where uh, you've all there's seen so this. Many, where, there's so many versions of this. There's, uh, there should yeah. be like you could almost do a whole book of all the versions of this uh, of this process. You know, there's one with the roller coaster, and yeah, yeah exactly. It's just basically illustrating the fact that when you go from uh, uh, customer request, they have stuff in their head, and then they uh, ask you, and they may not translate it all correctly and then you take it and it goes through this long chain of people and unless you have a really deliberate process you end up 
producing something or giving it back to the customer, uh, completely different from what they had in their head. So I think we've all seen variations of that. And Craig, uh, I'd chime in on on that part when it comes to um, when it comes to scoping. You know, there's there's a term that you can kind of double click on inside of scoping, which is discovery. So discovery um, in consulting engagements and software projects or construction or events um, really all has to do with getting on the same page with the customer and the and the end user. You know, so so one element of it is kind of effective interviews with all the stakeholders, really trying to make sure you understand. Now, sometimes an RFP is produced, right? And that does um, attempt to uh, help with discovery, right? By laying out what it is that the end user, the client is expecting when it comes to the the results of the results of the project. But, you know, another um, important part of discovery, if even if you do get an RFP and trying to spend time with the decision makers and, and the people that are going to be part of the project is building trust because the better questions that one um, on the service provider is asking, um, and uh, the more that you can kind of start to look for the edges that aren't necessarily defined so that you can get scope really tightened up, uh, the better you're going to be able to better you're going to be able to estimate and ultimately uh, bid on the project and, and hopefully win. Sorry, on mute. There we go. Uh, so let me let me jump to a couple of other quick topics and then we can open up for uh, questions. Uh, so. Uh, as Ryan said, getting a handle on uh, the scope uh, uh, and the cost, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and then also, uh, if you're thinking about uh, pricing, how much of a uh, range of uh variation are you running into as you look at this project going forward? Is there a lot of uh, things where the customer can uh, create ad hoc issues uh, and do you have a way of managing that scope as it goes along, uh, inserting a lot of uh, assumptions uh, around the scope such that uh, if they go beyond that, it, it you have something to reference. And then uh, just general risks is a big issue on whether it's uh, from the customer or third party situations, whether uh, the market, whatever it is. Uh, and then finally, uh, just understanding the team capacity. A lot of times people will bid on many projects, but if they all got approved or, or accepted, uh, you couldn't deliver all of those. So really understanding your team's capacity and then the confidence you have, especially if you have subcontractors uh, involved. Uh, then just a few high levels on the pricing uh, factors themselves. Uh, understand that you know when you're building up the uh, price on top of a, a cost basis, you want to make sure that you uh, cover off on overhead and add some amount for contingency uh, because you may uh, add in lots of costs, uh, but then there's unforeseen things. And so adding some percent, we use 10% for ourselves uh, uh, for contingency. And and one thing that you may want to think about as contingency is to kind of embed it into all everything that you do as well. So you can decide that you're going to put a contingency at the end, or you can embed in contingency into every element without without necessarily uh, having it line itemed. So you're just saying, I I think that this could be a little bit more expensive than I think it is, and as I as I bid through that, and the reason for that is that um, a lot of financial teams uh, within these groups will cut your contingency off. They'll just go, oh no, we're not <laughs> going to put that on there, you know. And so you know what we've learned to do over time is the not not you know 
it to calculate for the contingency, but calculate for it inside of. And if we can come back to a client and um, you know give them back that money, you know, so most clients, some clients do, but most clients will not complain if you come in ten percent less or eight percent less than than what you bid. <laughs> so, so we'd rather give it back to them or, or come in a little under uh, or provide more services inside of that budget because we had a little bit of contingency there to to spend. You know, so that's another thing to kind of. Kind of think there. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, no, no, go, no, go, go Craig. So yeah, I'll, I was just going to say. So jump in on, on the on the kind of estimating process, right? So um, some people have a really sophisticated estimating spreadsheet or a template that they want to kind of pull up and and do a copy and paste on from their previous project. And I actually find that um, keeping it simple is better. And sometimes starting from complete scratch on that template can be the answer. And just to give a sense for what that sometimes includes, you know, it's often kind of separated into, into two chunks. One is like the technical effort associated with doing the build if we're talking about software. So you've kind of got time on one one dimension and resources on another. Of course, those resources tend to have different uh, rates or cost drivers into the project, right? So especially if we're talking about onshore versus offshore um, resources or otherwise the other dimension, of course, is, you know, how senior is the person that's required on the project and how much can we try to um, push down to the uh, the less expensive resources to keep the average kind of blended rate as low as possible for um, for competitiveness, right? But when you when you break it into the two, the technical and then the, the project management oriented bits, the key is getting down to the smallest estimatable unit of work. And so when Alex talks about those contingencies, you know, what we look at is, okay, this is going to be a 26 week project and we're going to have a weekly status call. And so that weekly status call is something that we want to estimate itself. That weekly call is going to be one hour times four resources times $250 per hour. It's a thousand dollars a week for that weekly status call. Now, if we think that this is a 26 week project, when we talk about this contingency, $26,000 probably is not the right uh, price point there, you're probably going to want to, that's where you're going to take your extra 10% and go to a, you know, a, a 29 week um, figure there for, for that project management element. And then the same thing would go for any, any technical elements is, is assume one more resource than it's going to be, assume one more week or 10% or extra in terms of time than it's going to actually uh, take. And then account for rate increases too, right? I mean, if these projects are long enough where the resources are going to get raises between the time that you start the project and finish the project. That's something that isn't often considered. And then along those same lines, is this client going to sign this document right now? Or do we need to put a, you know, an expiration date on this? Because uh, if they take 12 months to sign, as can be the case sometimes in a software scenario, uh, you might have a whole different cost structure at that point in time. You may have a whole different company <laughs> in that time, uh, you know, the the uh, or a whole different you know, the business model, you know. So I think that that is, we definitely put time time frames on a lot of the things that we do um, related to that because we um, uh, because we to to the point that you know you don't know what you'll be doing, so you need to kind of create a point where they can't come back four months later or six months later and go, we still want to do that now in in the same structure. Yeah, go ahead, John. Greg, I'd be interested to see how you integrate risk management, insurance, lawsuits, all that kind of uh, into into these upcoming presentations. It, well, and, and I think that for us, I know that um, as we well, I'm, I'm speaking more for PixelCore than for um, Own because I don't, I don't, I'm not as close to the the some some of the stuff with with Own but with PixelCore, we definitely a lot of those things were calculated into the you know we our insurance and we didn't really calculate 
you know, lawsuits or whatever, we did calculate the E&O insurance and, and so on and so forth that, that we had there was all calculated into our overhead. So when we made a calculation of how much something cost, you know, everything from the rent and the power and the, you know, the staff that isn't billable to, you know, as well as the um, insurance was all kind of part of that, you know, what it takes to make this, this work, you know, what it takes to, you know, some fraction thereof, of that, of that process. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So a lot of that we consider overhead and we'll consider that'll get converted to a multiplier. So as you figure out the hours, if you're going to do it on an hourly basis or even convert that hourly basis to a lump sum, you then multiply it by that multiplier, which includes all your administration, your insurance, your rent and all the things that are overhead. Right. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that uh, it it's a little heavier for, you know, when you're doing a bid than someone who's just getting started, you know, so you're, you are going to be a little heavier because you have more overhead. But at the same time, you're bringing, you know, the stability and the fact that you have all of that insurance, <laughs> you have all those other things. So, you know, like there's, there's a lot of stuff I know for Pixelgore, you know, we had an enormous, because of the different facilities that we went into, we had an enormous amount of insurance. Um, but that meant that we could bid on, you know, the other thing we look at is that meant we could bid on things that only probably 1% of the production companies out there could bid on because they didn't, we were the ones that could deliver all of the things that were necessary for a large corporation to execute. So you have to remember that those are some of the things that kind of get, you know, brought into that, um, you know, that puzzle. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead uh, Craig. Yeah, so just covering off on a bunch of the top end topics. Uh, one of the other uh, pricing considerations is really uh, time materials versus fixed. We, we do uh, all fixed uh, price projects. Uh, one of the interesting things about fixed fee uh, uh, that we discovered uh, over the years is that uh, if your time materials uh, and the scope uh, grows, it's it's good as far as uh, the uh, your costs are covered, and if the client keeps asking for more, uh, you, you don't have to worry about it as long as everyone is is agreed. The problem is it puts you in a little bit of an adversarial position. If you want to make more money, you can only build more. Uh, and when we went to fixed fee, uh, we discovered everyone on the project realizes uh, ways to make the company more profitable is all about efficiency. And so unless you're fixed fee, it's really hard to have your uh, team look at how do you uh, save the end customer money. How do you become more efficient? Uh, so it's kind of an interesting artifact of that. Uh, yeah, we've done Go a ahead. little bit of both, and and I think that um, I find I prefer fixed fees, you know, as much as I possibly can. Um, but I've done a lot of a lot of both of those. I think you're right that with some clients and with some businesses, it's just impossible to do fixed fee because it's just there's too many variables, and you have to. And a lot of times, what we'll do is define the the project very define the project in in very clear amounts and this is again pixel more pixel core than than um than known i know but define we we would spend a lot of time defining those so we tell the client what we're giving them and then we say this is how much it is so add-ons outside of that description was still was still um a you know they were time and materials so we would say well another fixed fee like so if they said oh we want another camera sometimes we would 
um, you know, we would we would tell them, well, that's going to be another three thousand dollars for us to fly a camera and a camera operator, and da, 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 you know, like all that stuff is going to cost you that much more. So we would itemize things that were outside of the description. So it was a very detailed description of what we were giving them, but at the end, it was one number. And part of that was also that I didn't want our clients to feel like every time they called me that that there was an hourly clock that was going on that that was going back to them because then they called less, you know. And so the fixed fee, you know, because I want to have that, I want to be providing that service. I want to be giving them the the feedback because I mostly want them to not screw up the project by talking to, but talking amongst themselves or talking to other people and coming up with haywired ideas about how this could actually work in a way that wasn't going to actually be doable. Because if they talked, you know, from a production perspective, a lot of times if they talk to the agency too long, they'll come, they'll either do something that is really dumbed down or really, or really adventurous. And, you know, having us in the conversation was really important so that we could, you know, keep them away from the sharp edges. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So we found that the clients that have been doing this for a long time usually want a lump sum because they understand that it's much more efficient. There's much less of a billing hassle. There's a lot less copies of timesheets and things like that. But we've also found that there's a number of projects where we will do the first phase, which is the design phase, in uh, basically as a lump sum. And then time and materials will be charged to the contract administration, which is as the project's being built, how many times do you have to come out to the job site? When do you have to represent the owner? When do you have to represent the contractor? So that sometimes we'll do both on one project. Yeah, and I think that the other thing that you get into, I mean, did you want to actually, Craig, did you have more things you wanted to show from that slide before we before we jump into questions? I don't know if you had. I think we're good for questions. I see them okay. building up. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, so all I was going to say is that I think that the other thing that we didn't really touch on is like dealing with triple bidding. You know, so you, triple bidding is a pretty common thing in many industries where, you know, they, they are required to get, um, you know, three bids, you know, from that process. Now, I admit that, uh, you know, we're a little bit more accepting about it. I think own I know that I work for now is, is you know, will play into that. In Pixelcore, I would just stop bidding. <laughs> I can't, like, just go tell you to go, go somewhere else. Um, and uh, because I would, I didn't want to, you know, I was like, I, I don't want to have my relationship based on whether I can be the lowest bid, you know, in that area, because I think that triple bidding is probably the thing that burns many good projects to the ground, you know, most of the time is because it is, you know, it, it creates this this price competitiveness, which makes sense in, in the CFO's office, but doesn't actually make sense in the, actually producing a result. And so we, especially in, at least in this industry, you end up with just making a lot of really um, uh, penny-wise, pound-foolish um, decisions to to make that actually work. So one of the things that you know we we looked at, and that and this gets into things that you can do when you're bidding, or things that you can do in the infrastructure overall. This gets into like, for instance, for video production, owning equipment versus renting equipment. Renting equipment puts a a floor on what you can do with your bid because you you know you have a cost that you have to pass through whereas you can be more flexible when you own a lot of the equipment and when you have a lot of staff there's a lot of things that we could um make actually happen there um yeah so um anyway so let's go ahead and uh We'll jump into the first question. Uh, this comes from the QR code. Uh, this is George Ha in Talent, Oregon. And George asks, how do you encourage clients to sign uh, your estimate? Um, I need time to prepare. It's three weeks away. And I just received another request for the same week. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this. You definitely need to put expiration dates on proposals. And then the other important thing is is building in lead time to the language on the proposal, right? The proposal or the contract needs to state that the project isn't going to start until two or three or four weeks after the signature, because naturally 
uh, nobody's tending to sit, be sitting there with a bench big enough to be able to start a project overnight. Any project that's kind of of the right scale and that requires the right talent is definitely going to re- require lead time to get organized. If for nothing else, then to get a meeting on the calendar of the important people on the client side that need to be involved for you know, a proper kickoff, which is a really important element of any project if you want it to go right. Craig? Yeah, I think uh, the scarcity of resources, knowing and and letting them know, hey, you know, the team is available uh, if you want to get going with this, but uh, there's a number of other things. And if those kick off, you'll need to wait an extra few weeks or whatever the time period is. So uh, giving them a sense of urgency is important. CJ? There's also a lot of value in setting up some sort of automated system to do some of that follow-up for you. You don't want it to come out of left field uh, and just say, hey, you've got a bid to sign. Hey, you've got a bid to sign. Hey, you've got a bid to sign. However, uh, when you're in conversation with the client and you set the expectation that, hey, I've got this automated system, so once we get our proposal together, you're going to start seeing whether it's DocuSign or whatever. You're going to start seeing a reminder that you have something to sign off on. It makes it like you're not being the annoyance. It's the system that's being the annoyance. So you don't like sacrifice your <laughs> your rapport because they think that you're you're over following up. But a lot of times the people who are in decision making positions are just really busy. So having something that resurfaces it at the right time is really important. You go, Mark. So a lot of times there's other outside forces that are requiring you to get a contract signed before you move forward with the client. So insurance companies want to make sure there's a contract in place. The lawyers want to make sure contracts are in place. So everybody understands what's at stake here. What are, what's the budget? What is the time consideration, the schedule? And, and so you really can use those concepts and those requirements to get the client to you know, move forward a step. Next question is uh, from Roscoe Jones in Madison, uh, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, uh, how do you comply with a list of all of your company's relevant assets so that you know that the new projects, so that you know what new projects to bid on? And or do you have a method for finding the types of projects that you have done profitably in the past? Ryan? Yeah, so I'll kind of touch on the second part, right? Finding projects that you've done profitably in the past is the most important part of this whole kind of service provision uh, game. One way to narrow that pond is to focus on a specific industry, right? So I mentioned that I do software implementations and I personally and my team specific uh, focuses only on the construction industry and there are sub niches inside of that industry as well that one might focus on you might focus just on architecture and engineering like mark is in just specialty contractors just general contractors you also want to be aware of a revenue band that you might focus on right we tend to focus only on companies that are north of 50 million in revenue and typically less than a billion dollars in revenue because as you start to shrink that pond then the similarities from one project to the next tend to be extraordinarily tight. And so there's, you know, there's a a quote that's in more than one good book, but one that I just read called uh, How Clients Buy. And it said, you know, if you are not the best at what you do, you should be shrinking your pond and having defined those things, you know, you can be pretty confident that you're the the best at what you do. And so that's, that's kind of what it's all about when it comes to uh, finding profitable projects is the repeatability and not being out there just asking yourself, like I was very early in my career, 
who needs a CRM, right? Any Anybody that wants one, you know, we could do that for you. You could, but you're not going to probably be winning and you're probably not going to be profitable. Go ahead, Craig. And just to repeat a little bit, the, the value of doing that repetition of not just um, tracking what you're doing, but tracking the level of effort against the original estimate is critical so that at the end of the project or even after each phase, we'll look at uh, if if it fell in line, if was it within a couple of percent, did, did something great happen? So you became super efficient and discovered something that you want to work into all future projects? Or was there some other anomaly, some new technology that came in that complicated it or, or whatnot? And so tracking that along your project uh, and saving it away and then looking at it uh, at the end and comparing it to the uh, original estimate is really key for for tuning that over and over again. For us, uh, almost all of our projects uh, come in within just a few percent because we're constantly looking at that, that loop. Good, TJ. It's really important not to think so hard about the things you say yes to, but it's sometimes more important to figure out what you need to say no to and try not to be all things to all people. Uh, at our company, we focus on a concept from Jim Collins, I think it was in Good to Great, called the Hedgehog Concept. And the things that we say yes to are going to be there at the intersection of what are we passionate about, what's going to make us money, and what are we the best in the world at. When we focus on the projects that fall within the intersection of the triple Venn diagram, uh, then we find that bandwidth starts to be like bandwidth of the company that is 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 less of a concern than uh, than it might otherwise be. But definitely. Uh, You've got to know the limits of your people. You've got to be paying attention to what's the capacity of equipment, what's the capacity of your employees, what's going on in their lives outside of work externally, because sometimes all of those, especially in a smaller organization, all of those things can impact your ability to function at a high level and get that referral business for the next job, because that's ultimately what's going to drive you uh, drive you forward. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So it's interesting, in architecture and engineering, many times the RFP, the response to the RFP is based not solely on price, but mostly qualifications, and then they will pick the most qualified team and negotiate a price. At other times, you do have to submit a price, but it's two-phase. So when we look at an RFP, we'll try and determine whether or not we have the resources, and by that I don't just mean the people, but have they done this type of project before? Have they designed this type of facility? Can we put together that team with those sub-consultants and engineers to really respond and be competitive? And in that case, you get to the next step, which is how do you identify those resources? Well, they've been identified because you didn't even go after the job if you didn't have them. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I, I love there's a there's a uh, clip from we say it oftentimes internally. Um, there's a clip from Joe versus the volcano. If you've never seen it, it's a it's a really good Tom Hanks movie, early Tom Hanks movie. But there's a shot where the guy's talking about it. he's talking on the phone, and he's yelling at the guy, and he goes, "I know you can get the job, but can you do the job?" I know you can get the job, but can you do the job? You know, and and uh, and he just keeps on repeating it over and over again. And and it's so important is to know that you can when you if you're going to send a bid out that you are able that you know that you could actually achieve that that um you know that thing. And sometimes it doesn't mean you've done it before. 
I, you know, for a, a lot of the streams that I've done in the last 10 years, no one's ever done before. Like no one's ever connected schools to the space station or, um, you know, an underwater diver among sharks to, you know, to a studio in, in LA. So people would say, well, how do you know that you've done it? I said, well, I've done all the other components. Like I've done all the components that are there and I understand how they work. I just haven't put them in that combination before. And so, but I was always very careful if, if I had never done it and never had that. I was always very upfront, like, this is going to be new. We're all doing something new and we're going to be building something out. So, you know, there's a lot of variance in what it might do. The other thing is that I tend, now, this also depends on the kind of client that you have. When we work with Hollywood clients, they kind of expect you to bid low and then just keep adding things to it. So it's time materials and they kind of expect that. They do not expect that in corporate. And so when we work with corporate clients, you know, I will tend to hold a line. They'll say, I've got this idea coming in, how much does it cost? And I'll always give them the line I always give them, which is the same number. There's the same number as the last ones were, like the, that average number or whatever. I'm like, until you give me more information, it's this number. Now, we might be able to bring it down or might go up, but I'm not going to, like, that is the number I'm going to give you until I have the information I need to give you back a bid that's more accurate. Go ahead, Ryan. You talked about projects that, um, you know, have never been done before, projects that are kind of new and outside of your um kind of typical range of of confidence and you know a point to note here is that while you want to figure out what you're good at and stay in your lane and keep that lane as narrow as possible uh focusing on only things that are easy and that a lot of people can do means that you're playing in a in a, in a very commoditized space in a very commoditized space you tend to be able to push more offshore and you tend to find yourself in, a, in, a, in an environment that's much more competitive with much lower rates. So while you want to have a really narrow focus, you definitely want to be open to uh, things that are slightly outside the realm of, you know, what you know, a lot of people have experience with, because that is where margin exists, right? Margin exists where there isn't significant competition and where you are uniquely positioned or qualified. One of the things, I don't know if it's still the case, um, but uh, I know that when I was at ILM, one of the driving things was that it, for them to even, ILM had so many people that wanted to work for them and so many people that wanted them to work for them um, that that they really were in a place because they had broken all this new ground, they could always keep on breaking new ground. And one of the things that they had as a requirement to take on a job, and again, I don't know if this is the case, this was 25 years ago, but a basis of the requirement was it had to require new technology development. So, it, you know, they had to be able to bill <laughs> for new technology um, that they were going to develop for. So they'd always look for at every project. It, what's the new thing? What's the thing that we're adding to to this process? And 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 I think that it's really important what Ryan's talking about is always looking for how to, um, you know, make it better. And so the, for me, the things that I'm always looking for as I bid on projects is A, you know, what elements can we add that are going to be, you know, new and, and, and interesting that's, that's going to break new ground? Also, how do we refine, if, if a client's coming back to us for the same thing, how do we either make that job more efficient or in, in a perfect, make it better, smoother, cleaner, looks better, or make it more efficient? And in a perfect world, a little bit of both. You know, so what I'm always trying to do is how do I give a little bit more quality for a little less money? all the time. You know, we don't always succeed at that, but we're always trying to find a way to make it because now, we now know them. We now know what the things are. So how can we put things into place that make it us more efficient to at least give them a better thing? Now, if they keep on changing, the hard part is, is that clients will keep on changing things and then you can't, you can't quite give them the efficiencies that you'd like to. Go ahead, Ryan. You know, and when it comes to running a business, your 
portfolio of projects being balanced is important. What's perfect for us is if we've got a handful of projects that we're really at the tip of the spear on and that are really challenging our best people. But then if we've also got a series or a subset of our projects, ideally an even bigger subset that are just absolute slam dunks, right? 90 mile an hour strike strikes right down the middle that we know we can can knock out and so it's kind of a matter of those those big rocks and the the sand and the gravel that are filling things in to to form a perfect portfolio yeah i mean one of the things i've talked about a a fair bit in the past but is i think of my my career but definitely within the company that i that i work with and is the companies that i've worked in as kind of a tank track so this is what's paying all the bills right now it's the one that's on the ground there is usually a set of kinds of projects um, that I'm trying to get rid of. You know, these were, you know, this is this is the stuff I'm like trying to knock out. And then there's a set of projects that are dro- taking me forward. You know, like that this is going to take me to the next place that I want to be. And and this and then there's you know I can see that the the one here and these are the ones that I don't do anymore. <laughs> you know, and so like a tank track, it's just constantly turning for me. Of I'm always looking for what is the next thing. Now that may. Oftentimes, that's within the same company that I'm bidding for. It's not like I'm trying to find new companies, but I'm looking for the next thing that we want to do. And so we want a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and and we usually have a little bit of that. And you kind of, you know, you want to do that much slower than you think that you... (laughs) <laughs> than you think you should. Uh, I think that it's easy as entrepreneurs for us to think about how fast things should go. And usually it wants to go a lot slower than, than you think. Uh, next question. Uh, it's from David Moeller, sorry, Arlington, Texas. Um, David asks, uh, when doing work on a gig basis for audio mixing or camera work, what methods of payment should one accept beyond merchant services, credit cards? Uh, go ahead, CJ. I'm a big fan of uh, outsourcing that to something like a FreshBooks that has uh, some light accounting software built in, but also it enables them to pay online. The number one thing that has gotten me paid faster on the gig work that I do outside of my day job is to make it easy for them to pay. If there's a link that they can click on that gets you paid, odds are they're going to do it. Uh, I get a little nervous about... uh, I guess I don't like checks just because it's, you know, it's an extra step. Uh, it's not that instant gratification, but also, um, you know, you got to get paid if you're going to stay in business and keep working. So make and it I easy. Think, I think it, it often depends on the scale, you know. So I think in the sub $10,000 billing, I think that, you know, something like FreshBooks makes sense. When you start getting over $10,000 of billing, you start not wanting to give up that percentage and they don't want to pay for it. <laughs> so, so, so the, so I think that figuring out direct bank transfers at that point, um, for most of the work that I do, and again, I mostly work with corporations. And so for me, there's a master service agreement. There's, you know, a process, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, a bunch of things. One of the things to think about there, and this is probably a little outside of the scope of this, this, this morning, but, uh, with new clients that come in, um, if they're a really large client, we have a master service agreement. Um, you know, we, we're a little flexible, but uh, or, and again, I'm speaking more towards Pixelcore because I, I had more control over it there than I do now. But with Pixelcore, if you were a new client, we wanted a master service agreement and we wanted all the money up front for the first three projects. <laughs> so, so like it was like it was we're not, you know, we didn't start extending credit until we had a track record of how it was to work with you and whether that that was a, you know, and if we were working with someone in L.A., Typically, that was we needed the money, all the money up front, fourteen days in advance of a project. The problem with live is that 
is that once you do the job, there's nothing left to do. <laughs> you don't have no, you don't have any leverage. It's the, the, the job's over. And so we were pretty uh, brutal about that. Um, maybe we might've given up some work in that, in that process, but the handful of times we gave credit to, you know, uh, folks in Hollywood, we spent a lot of, a lot of effort and time chasing it down. And I will say that if, if a client makes us chase down getting paid for, for, an ex, uh, if we feel like we're getting a runaround or getting delayed a lot, um, the ch- the chances of us doing more work for them is becomes very low. Go ahead, CJ. Yeah, unless you have an accounts receivable department, do not work with anything that's going to make you chase money because it's not worth it. It's going to be a distraction from actually doing the work that you like to do. And, and uh, for oh, good, good. Nope. All I was going to say is is also again we're not because we're talking about billing. We'll talk a little bit about collections in. We try to do that as gently as possible. Like it, it is a casual, like, "Hey, how's it going?" Da, 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 da. And you know, by the way, let us know if we can do anything or if there's anything else we need to get done. Try to do it. At some point, we would just say, you know, we would tell accounting to go get them, <laughs> like you know, like in Pixelcore. I mean, see, oh no, no, it was again different. But in, in there was only probably a handful of times that we weren't able to kind of gently get, you know, get paid. But there was a couple times where we just just said, you know, let them loose, and they would. They got paid, <laughs> like you know, like that was. But it, but it, but then you're saying I never want to work with that client again, you know. Like exactly. that, that's when we when we got to the end of that, we would just say, okay, we're burning them. The first step is like, hey, who's got the best relationship with these guys? Have the salesperson reach out, see if everything's okay, and then it's like, hey, you know that really nice lady that's in accounting. Have her call up, just check in, ask how things are going, and then you get the call from the CFO that's just very very direct, very yeah. cold. Um, well, and yeah, and, and I think that the. You really can tweak it. I, I will say, I, I know that we're talking about billing, but I guess we are billing people to some degree. We can just say that is a soup that, that is as important as your sales call is how you call, come. Like if you send some angry email at 31 days on a 30 day invoice, you know, you're now only going to get hired when you, they need you. <laughs> like you, you. You're very like you very quickly got to man, you better be good at what you do to not have that, you know, coax along and, and let that drag out. If, if it's a client you care about. You know, you kind of have nice conversations about that. And we definitely have people or their spouses or other things <laughs> that, that like to call that like to call up right at the very end and demand it. And I get, you know, and, and sometimes you're in a position where you need the money, but you can be you can really burn up a relationship really quickly that way too. Um, next question. Uh, sorry, Douglas from Douglas Carmichael. Um, uh, how do you uh, account for cabling and other consumables in costing a project when specific re- requirements are vague? Uh, do you use a certain fixed percentage in the cost breakdown? Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, so if you think about it, uh, people's time is consumable. So there, once the time is gone, it's it's gone. Uh, and so for our projects, we're not using a lot of cabling, but you know, there's other things that are resources that are used in a project. And so uh, if you're doing a project uh, that's similar to our, our past one, uh, Brian had a good uh, 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 data point of uh, being an expert in your area. Or it, so if you're doing a project that you've done similar to those before and you keep track of what you've burned before, it's as important to keep track of the uh, time that people put into it, as well as all the materials you use. So you can look back on it and say, oh, well, this job used this and that job used that much. And so we're estimating because this one is somewhere in between. You can you can guesstimate a little bit uh, better. But I would track those with any project you're doing, uh, just like 
uh, people's time. Go ahead, TJ. Yeah, in the manufacturing world, we've got uh, we've got scrap, right? You need X amount of material to set up a machine. You know that you know machine A is going to have a really low scrap percentage, but machine B with this particular type of product is going to have a higher percentage, and that's always baked into our number. And uh, to to echo what Craig said, the the more that you do something, the uh, the more that you just have an intuition for what is that number. But very important to track everything that you're using on every job, so that way when you're pricing it, there are no surprises. One of the things I learned from other folks, if we really get into a client that really wants, you know, a line item for everything that, you know, they'll, you know, you know I have to admit that, that, that we, ha- uh, again, oh, I know is a little bit different, but Pixacore definitely got into a little bit of a passive aggressive thing. Like, hey, if you're demanding line items, we would line item every cable, like $3 for every cable. Like we would just listen, it would be like eight pages of, 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 of um, line items. <laughs> like if you really want to do this, like this is how much it all is. Um, this is the rental, this is what it would cost us to rent that, that that piece, you know, and so um, the, but I think that in general, um, we look at cabling, cabling, obviously, obviously most of the time we get to have back. And so we don't really think about that as a real cost, but there are places where you have to decide you're going to lose the cable. So for instance, we've made decide, there's a, um, if there's a great historical uh, thing that you have to think about with bidding and with business in general is burning the train. So um, when uh, I think it was uh, Carnegie, I believe, was an assistant at the Pennsylvania Railroad or whatever, there was this issue where the trains would break down on the track and they would have to send an engineer out and they'd have to fix it. And all that time they left the, the train on the track and then no one could use the track and they were losing money on usage, usage of the track on all the stuff that could be transported. And when the president of, of Pennsylvania Railroad was, uh, I, I believe it was Pennsylvania Railroad, anyway, when he was out of town, a telegram came in and said, oh, we got a, we got a train down. And he got a telegraph, telegram back that, from Carnegie that just said, burn the train. And, they, and he was like, sorry, I think I misunderstood your last telegram. It looked a lot like burn the train. He like, yeah, burn the train, just get it off the tracks. So we, 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 it cost too much money to keep it there. And we talk about that a lot. And when we think about this, because it affects bidding, is that I'll make decisions about cabling of how much is that cable cost versus the labor it takes for me to take it back down again. So we run things up into trusses. We run them on, like we do this thing, and we used to do this thing at CES where we, it was at a big booth, and we run all this fiber underneath it. When I bid it, I just bid to lose the fiber. Like I didn't even, I wasn't even gonna wait, because I wasn't gonna wait for that fiber to come back out again. Like it was, it cost me too much money to wait for the fiber. So I, what we call burn the train. Like I just left it there and they can scrap it. And so when I put, I put, you know, 2000 feet of fiber into the, into the space, knowing that I'm never getting it back (laughs) because I'm not going to, because it's too expensive to wait. We do that with ethernet cables. We do that with lots of other things where we send them all over and trusses, you know, it's going to take a day for that stuff to come down. I'm not going to keep anybody here. So, um, so those are the kind of things that, that you you have to make decisions about when you're bidding is what are you going to keep and what are you going to get rid of? Um, Next question is from Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana. Uh, and Roscoe uh, asks, uh, how much do you invest in design of the bid presentation? Go ahead, Mark. So we invest quite a bit, and I'll give you an example. If we're chasing a $100 million hangar that's design-build with a contractor, that contractor is going to need to a set of drawings to be able to bid the, the project. They're going to need to know where are the floor plans, what are the elevations. We have to help them develop a list of materials. So we'll work with them. It's usually about 60 days because there's a 30-day period for questions and answers, and there's a 30-day period to put together the proposal. So we'll work with them and the entire team going through once a week 
on a big Zoom call with all the plans in front of there, going through and itemizing every step it's going to take so that we can be as competitive as possible in that bid. Here with Ryan. You know, it's not just designing the bid presentation that has a cost to it. The entire pursuit has significant costs. So we talked about discovery. We talked about estimating. There's ton, tends to be a lot of different touch points and meetings. And then maybe just one RFP response, maybe just one PowerPoint or keynote that we're delivering to walk them through the proposal. But sometimes it's a dozen. And so, um, you know, it, this is a great question. And certainly those that are inexperienced can end up spending more pursuing a particular project than they ever stood to earn on that particular project. Occasionally, there's a good reason to do that and it's worth it. But if your organization is not focused on getting this balance right, it is going to be very hard to stay in business long. Craig? Yeah, and I, I guess there's another aspect of this, which is really understanding and knowing uh, the end customer. What's their culture? What are their expectations? Uh, what are their decision points? And if you've seen that theme throughout this, it's really understanding uh, uh, who they are and how they make decisions. Uh, we do work for large banks. It's a very different uh, conversation than a uh, local hospital chain. And so that uh, that brings into our presentation. CJ? I keep having to modify my response because it's always almost exactly what Craig said. Um, know your audience. Everybody's in sales. And if you're cookie, if you are a uh, cookie cutter with your bidding process or your bidding presentation, the customer is going to notice. If you're dealing with a smaller company that is a very horizontal org chart and you're getting to decision makers quickly and they're going to make decisions quickly don't spend time interviewing the same amount of people that you would if you were dealing with five different departments or five different teams within a large organization uh, the other thing is uh, know what you're uh, know what you're up against know your competition how are they going to bid who is bidding that kind of project what do i have that's unique uh, that they don't have. Th those are all the, the factors that I'm con constantly considering is that, like, how can I know my audience, tailor and adapt my presentation style to who with uh, the person with whom I'm speaking and making sure that I'm doing everything I can to set expectations every step of the way so that there are no surprises. The last thing that I do for a bid presentation is I do not allow words to come from my mouth unless I can directly relate them to how it benefits the person sitting across from me at the table. There's a great uh, Zig Ziglar quote that I love that's uh, everybody listens to the same radio station. It's W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. W-I-F-M. Um, along with what CJ was talking about, an important part of discovery is alerting your competition to what's hidden in that project. Because if you don't, you take the risk that they'll underbid you not knowing the complications of the project. So we always ask questions about things that we find that are very complicated about the project to telegraph to the rest of the competitors that, hey, you need to watch out for this, so carry it in the price. I will admit that I, I often will allow the client to, you know, I don't telegraph a lot of the complexities. One of the things that you have to be careful on a bit, because I do pretty detailed, uh, oftentimes for larger projects, I'll do pretty detailed um, keynotes about this is how we're going to do the project. But I usually leave, and it's very conceptual. It's not precise. You know, like it's, it's there, like this is what we're going to do. Now, I don't tell you how we're going to do that. And usually if you, if you did it at the price that I gave it to you and you didn't understand how I was going to do it, 
you're going to take that asphalt at about 35 to 35 degree angle. Like, you know, and, and so, and I've, I've, you know, and when they pick somebody else, I'll look at them and I'll go, Oh, that's going to be rough. There's not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sell them. I'm just, I'm just like, well, the, this is, this one's going to be a lesson. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, you know, I'm, you know, and, and a lot of times my bids are designed to create complexity, not create complexity, but really create a, a very customized solution for the client that is exactly what they need and exactly what they want. And most of the people that can underbid me are not going to do that. They're going to have a cookie cutter. This is how we do this. And this is what we do and everything else. And so I know that if they try to adapt to anything that I'm doing, um, generally they're going to, they're really going to take it hard, you know, like, because what I'm doing generally is hard, you know, like I, I make it, I don't make it hard on purpose, but I make it customized and I look for how do we, how do we tweak the most out of that project and how do we make it the best for the client that's possible. And again, it's cost effective. I will admit that I don't pay attention to anybody else's bid or any other competition in what I do. I, I look at the client and I look at exactly what I think that they need and how to maximize that event for them. And I give them the best price I can give them for what they're asking for. And then I go, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> you know, so go ahead, CJ. There is an art to uh, the way to ask questions. Uh, you can ask questions in such a way that makes, uh, first of all, makes the person on the other end of the table know that you are that you care about the project and that you're trying to have their best interests at heart. Uh, but also there's a way to ask a question that that displays some of the capabilities that you have and then maybe makes them question, hey, the other guy didn't ask that question. Yeah. The other person didn't have that comment. Uh, I wonder if they're even thinking about all of that sows some doubt um, in the people that you're in the people that you're competing against. And there's also uh, there's a way to indirectly question someone uh, about something. Like I, I wouldn't, when I was selling Apple Care, I didn't give them the with fries with that at the end of the presentation and say, oh, and do you want Apple Care? Everybody says no. I started asking people, well, how are you backing up your computer? What do you mean backing up my computer? Oh, well, sometimes hard drives fail and you can ha not lose any data. And then if you have Apple Care, your uh, hard drive replacement is free. Oh, what's Apple Care? And then all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. And, and I think that the one thing I will say is that I, I, I believe that probably a solid 25 to 30% of my, uh, what I've sold in the past 10 years was because of my keynote document. Like it, it was a, you know, like I, you know, I saw sometimes I'd see the other bids that went through and they were like Excel files with some pictures and some a, a text description of what they were going to do. I build diagrams like this is what it's going to look like. This is the layout. This is how the people are going to be laid out. This is what it's going to, you know, this is what we're going to do here. This is the, you know, these are the angles and all the other things. And I have almost no text on my documents. Um, you know, just a little bit that you need to see. And you, but you, as you flick through it, you get a sense that A, I know what I'm talking about. B, I know exactly what your project means. There's almost no setup slides. Like I, I will say as if someone who sees the, gets these slides, you know, the 10 slides that tell people about the market and where you fit into the market. I don't care about those slides. Like I literally am like, okay, okay, okay. And, I, and I'm pretty aggressive about it. If you're in a meeting with me, I'm like, I got it. 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 And I'm just, I just, I just want to get rid of all those slides that are in front um, because I just want to get to like, okay, what are you doing for me? This gets back into what am I, I have a project that I'm trying to solve and I just need you, I don't, you're wasting my time telling me about like all the other stuff there. I can look at that later or have somebody research you. Um, but this gets back into the you know, I've said this, I think I said this yesterday, I say it over and over again, but just always remember with your action equals possibility is greater than circumstance. And your presentation should should be 
dropping the circumstance, raising the possibility, either one or the other or both, and it will always occur when the possibility is great. Now, if it's not happening, it means that they have a circumstance, generally, they have a circumstance that you can't see. Like that's the, that's the um, if, if someone isn't moving and you're giving them a great possibility, there's some circumstance that you can't see. And when you're in a meeting with them, you're trying to dig that out. And that might be that the someone in the team has a personal relationship with another company. It might mean that they really are worried about this. Oh, how much is this going to cost over a year? It might mean that they're, but you have to dig those things out over time to figure out what those circumstances are because they're not always obvious. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Sorry, I'm very pattern-oriented. Many U.S. government contracts favor vendors that use people with disabilities for 75% of the work. Uh, Have you uh, dealt with that in your projects? Go ahead, Ryan. So there are kind of three categories here, right? MBE, DBE, WBE, and you're right, it is very common. Really, the way to deal with this is joint ventures. A lot of those organizations Uh, tend to be a little bit smaller and are thrilled to partner up in a joint venture with a bigger, more seasoned organization that might not have said uh, designation. Go ahead, Mark. So uh, uh, all the federal projects have this. So basically what happens is the larger contractors will set up mentoring programs and bring in the smaller contractors that have one of these classifications and help them grow. And then they grow out of the program and they'll go and start to cycle over again with new contractors. Yeah, and and the uh, it's it it it's kind of the design. You may think that that's a manipulation of the system, but it's really a design is to give people um, an opportunity. Companies that have either disabilities or minorities or or they're just smaller companies, it get, it gets them a, a seat at the table where they get to understand how this all works and and, and where it goes. And as, as Mark said, a lot of people grow out of that, and then they move. You move on to the next one there. So so I think that, and I know uh, in in when I was when my with Pixelgore, when we were really small, we, we were definitely benefactors of, of some of those things where they were just looking for small businesses. You know, the other thing to note beyond disabilities is if you have a small business, um, a lot of times there's a requirement for a certain percentage of the contracts to go to small businesses. And so a big company like IBM or, or, or someone like that will come in and be, they're always looking for businesses that fulfill these requirements. And again, it's, it is, um, it's exactly the way the system is designed is to put Take people who have smaller companies, uh, minorities, disabilities, and 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 give them an opportunity to be in the room where it happens, you know, and let them continue to expand. Um, and and it doesn't mean that they have to be technically ready to do that yet. <laughs> you know, it's it's the it's it's introducing them to that process. Uh, next question is from uh, Danny Grizzle in um, in Longview, Texas. And Danny asks, follow-up question to the bidding jobs. Um, do you actively call clients? A management story I read told how Jack Eckerd, founder of the pharmacy chain, um, uh, closed the bottom 5% performing stores every year. The word no seems essential in business. Go ahead, Craig. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of automatic things like that, of calling a certain percent, but it certainly speaks to um, highlighting uh, the jobs that you lost money at or didn't go well, or the team just really had a hard time with because of the culture of the customer. Uh, so certainly tracking those and at the end, uh, flagging it as, yeah, if we have a choice, don't don't bother with them anymore. So I think it's more important just to be able to highlight uh, where you might want to make a decision in the future. Hey, Ryan. If you have sufficient scale, right, if you have 100 or more active customers and you have ongoing contracts, meaning these are not all one-time projects, if both of those are con- 
if both of those conditions are met, you absolutely should be calling two to 5% of your client base every single year. Because if you have that wide of a distribution, inevitably there's a subset of those customers that aren't treating your people as well, or that aren't uh, organized in such a way they're leading to the profitability that you need. And we all know the Pareto kind of principle around 20% of clients are causing 80% of the pain. So culling is critical if those two conditions are met. Good, Mark. So it really depends on the industry. I know as a small business in the architecture and engineering industry, we try and keep all the clients. We do keep track of what clients take, how much handholding, so that we can adjust for that accordingly and still have some profit at the end of the job. But we will watch that. In, in other industries like radio, we're constantly going through who are all the clients because we have a lot more clients in radio and how do we adjust for this so that we're not taking that 80% of that person's time and pointing it at 20% of the time. It's just not fair to the clients that do that are very good clients. Good CJ. And there's no good way to fire a customer. So just start raising their price. And if they keep paying you more money, then maybe it starts to be worth the pain. I that's I tend to not fire customers as much as we just make sure that it's worth it for us. You know, like the when we bid when we bid to them, we just want to make sure that that number makes sense for us if they're if it's problematic. Um, you know, if they're problematic, I will tell you that some of the hardest customers to work with will be the most dedicated because they can't no one else will work with them. So you have to you know if you figure out a way. We've had a couple customers. This is more Pixelcore again. We've had, we had a couple customers that were wow they were hard. They were really hard. They were difficult. They were prickly. They were, you know, they, whatever, but we figured out a way to give them the service that they needed and they wouldn't, they never went anywhere else. They called us for everything. They recommended us to other people because we had figured, you know, we, so figuring that out, sometimes it's just a, it's a, it's a little bit of a puzzle that you have to kind of sort out. Go ahead, Mark. Building long-term relationships is a lot less expensive than looking for new clients. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but we definitely had clients that were really difficult. We would, that we couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't that we said, well, they're not workable. We was just like, oh, I don't think we're the right match, but we would keep on increasing the price so that we could add more feature sets to the, to what they were doing to make sure that it wasn't hitting us. And if they kept on paying it, we just kept on doing that until, until it got to a point where we had enough, basically it was, do we have enough staff to support that client? <laughs> and, and are they paying enough for us to give them that staff to do that? Uh, go ahead. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. And he says, what are your subcontract agreements to prevent poaching? Uh, Ryan, sorry. So our contracts typically state that 40% of the salary of the person that you're poaching is something that's due to us, but I don't want to, um, you know, leave anyone with the impression that that's even really a fair trade, right? If I was in charge, it would be 200% because, you know, I think that we all know uh, it, the, the cost to replace somebody is 3x what it uh, would be. And we all know too that the people that are poaching are getting, sorry, that are getting poached are probably the most uh, valued members of our team. So I think, you know, a big reason why that percentage isn't too high is that it's probably challenging to uh, enforce. And I would say, you know, creating the right culture and work environment is really the only way you can, can protect yourself is, you know, paying competitively and, and all the soft bits around that. Good, Greg. Uh, I think uh, have protecting yourself both on the MSA uh, with your end client, but also with your subcontractors or employees such that uh, you're protecting them both and then just counting on uh, their professionalism and their their uh, experience with you. And, and, you know, as Ryan said. Yeah, Mark. 
So in the architecture and engineering industry, there's usually groups of teams that work together to chase work because they've built these portfolios for the certain type of work, really frowned upon. People will know right away if that happens in that industry. In the radio, in the media industry, it tends to be the other way. It's, it's handed down in the employee contract, the employer-employee relationship, that if you leave here, you can't work for X, amount, X number of years for X distance away over a certain period of time because we've taught you certain trade secrets that we don't want our competition to know. And in California, that's not enforceable. (laughs) So you end up in a situation where what we found was is that, um, you know, our job was to keep our employees happy um, and and oftentimes uh, and and have a relationship with uh, our clients in such that the clients didn't want to poach because they needed us. They needed the rest of the company to do that. Oftentimes, um, one of the things that we did, though, is we also managed transitions. Clients would come to us and say, hey, this person, you know, Joe is really great and we really need someone internal that's like him. Can we, uh, what do you, you know, what are the situation? And we would build a, a transferable, this is again, the Pixicore, old Pixicore thing. We just talk about how to move Joe over. We wouldn't stop them. We would just make sure that they, we finished the projects that were there and, and everything else. And so uh, I think that's probably a gray area of where, where it happened there, but the, um, but they were going anyway. <laughs> like, so, so it wasn't, you know, but we were just kind of talking about timing of that, of that process. And usually they had already instit, you know, in, they'd already moved, started moving that forward. And so it was just a matter of everyone doing it in a way that was stable. And we all talked about it together, you know, to, to make sure that that happened. What was great for us is that our, if we did it that way, if we were able to, if we were not stopping anybody from going where they wanted to go next, and if they got a good position and the company got something, what we were doing is building our relationship. You know, we're building our relationship with that company. Now we have people that are inside that company that are, you know, so if, if you don't make it a big deal, um, it was now there. Now the other direction of poaching, of course, is the subcontractors poaching work from the company to them as subcontractors. And I can tell you that anybody who did that just didn't work for us anymore. <laughs> even even the smell of it, even if they were talking wide, you know, um, at, a, at an event about what they can do and everything else, that was almost an um, immediate no-go. Last question for the first hour um, is from Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida. How do you protect design decisions made in your bid? What type of equipment to install from being taken by the client as shopping uh, as a shopping list for a competitor to do this job? Uh, go ahead, Ryan. Similar to the, you know, the poaching protection question, there's only so much you can do. The language that you use is that this is privileged and confidential information contained in the proposal and that it's to be viewed and used only by uh, prospect ABC for the purposes of making this decision and is not to be shared. But it is also, you know, definitely part of the risk associated with sharing a certain amount of detail in a proposal, not something you can protect yourself entirely from. And so I'd say the main thing is be proud of what it is that's uh, very well possible that it, you know, could be shared. Go ahead, CJ. It, there's something to, uh, to uh, genericize it as much as you can. Uh, obviously, you want to make sure that people understand what they're paying for and what they're getting, but they don't necessarily need to know every nut and bolt lump sum whenever possible. Oftentimes, you know, I put a, what appears to be a lot of detail into a project and then, but it leaves out the key pieces that if you don't put those in, none of it will work. And that way, if they take it somewhere else and they give it to somebody else, it, it turns out to be disastrous usually <laughs> you know, because I've, I've given them a combination and without the, the four other pieces that are not in the di- deck, which you wouldn't see because there's so much detail there um, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that it was a problem until you were there. So um, there we go. Good conversation.
thanks to the team here, the production team. That's uh, I, I do think, think it's interesting that that there's a there is a real strong crossover between construction and video production. You know, it's, it's a very you know there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of the things that we have and a lot of the same requirements. So thanks to the so the, to the uh, to the production group here for um, for keeping this series going. I think it's going to be really great as we keep on going through the through the next year. Um, thanks to the the panelists. Can't do this without you. And we had a great panel here in the first hour and the second hour. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great questions. You know, it started a little slow, and I, I was like, oh, maybe this will be a short one. And then everyone just kept on asking questions. We had to turn a couple back. Sorry about that. Go ahead and save those for the next Monday because a lot of times this team is here on those Mondays. And so just bring those questions back in, and we'll uh, we'll address them then. You can ask the, these kinds of questions, especially on Monday, uh, any Monday, you know, to, to have that there if you see some of the group here um, that's there to answer your questions as well. So stay tuned for that. And um, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that makes everything work. It's, uh, you know, there's, we're managing managing all the items here. We're, we're trying to figure out how to develop the pipeline to make this actually work. And of course, an incredible team on the back end that is constantly making it happen day to day on the ground or in the cloud, really, not really on the ground, but in the cloud, uh, pulling this all together. Tlaloc Traversal, we traveled 65,000 miles and that is 104,000 kilometers, and that is 516 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. <laughs> 